McCartney, up close. Saturday at 6, Sunday at 12.30 on VH1. Check local listings for radio simulcast. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. How'd you like the lyrics? Welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is wide screen podcasting. I am of I am of course your host Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Right, everyone, things are going to be slightly out of order at the moment. For today, we are not going to be looking at Unplugged, the official bootleg, and instead we're going to be jumping right to the next major recorded performance in McCartney's 90s phase, also his next MTV performance, and normally this wouldn't be too much of an issue, but not a week or so after I recorded the episode you're about to hear now, my next guest actually wanted to do Unplugged, and we did, and so I I could have just started editing that right away and I know there are people sitting there thinking right now Sam why didn't you just delay this one until you put the other one out well firstly uh, I referenced the fact that I haven't yet seen MTV unplugged in this conversation several times and in the unplugged episode I referenced the fact that I have seen up close so it makes sense in terms of the logic of the conversation uh, secondly, I do just like to edit my catalogue in order as much as possible. And finally, I think a lot of my opinions on this era of Paul have largely been defined by the fact that I've watched these two performances in this order. So we are going to keep it that way. But why am I prattling on about all of this? Well, it's all because my guest today, as you will have seen in the title... Yes, I will be speaking with the powerful Alan Cozen from the Indomitable Things We Said Today podcast, as well as innumerable real-life proper publications. Um, And honestly, when I got in contact with Alan, I never thought he was going to do the show, and I was going to basically bend over backwards for whatever topic he threw at me, no matter how much it would upset the delicate order or balance or chronology of the show. Turns out... He chose the 1993 Up Close gig at the Ed Sullivan Theatre for reasons we will go into in the episode. And i got to say, I was both excited and intrigued. As up until that moment, I had never even heard of this performance. So right off the bat, let me just thank Alan, not only just for coming on the show and being his delightful self and being very generous with his time, but also for introducing me to one of... Not only the best live McCartney shows of this era that I've seen in a while, but of all time, it really is that good. And as you will hear, it is filled to the brim with 
some of the all-time greatest Paul McCartney recordings. It go, Of course, it goes without saying that having Alan on the show was just the best. As you all know, I am a mahoosive fan of the Things We Said Today podcast. Not two episodes ago, we did have Ken Michaels himself on the show. And overall, I just feel so lucky that I'm able to speak with the folks who not only helped shape my view on Paul and the Beatles in general, but also helped define how I wanted to do a podcast, how I wanted to talk about this stuff. I do have a sneaking suspicion I do have a sneaking suspicion that maybe Ken let slip that I do tend to go overly long with these episodes, especially with these kind of uh, late 80s, 90s TV specials. And, you know, maybe Alan was warned ahead of time that he would have to be doing this for a while. But we do go in depth here, folks, because there is an awful lot to cover with Up Close, uh, especially with Alan's own uniquely privileged take he was able to bring with him to this conversation. You're going to enjoy this one. One thing I do have to say, though, before we begin, again, this was an interview taken from a period where my mic was on the fritz, uh, which is already pretty terrible, as you've heard in a couple of episodes past, uh, for the audio quality that I like to put out. But in addition to that, Zoom decided that for this discussion, the little mic on my earphones, that was the better recording device to record the conversation on than my MacBooks one, apparently. And so therefore, there are quite a few muffles and scratchy scuffles uh, on my end. Apologies in advance. As always, nothing too complicated, folks. Like a lot of these kind of shows, I am also going to do a little bit of an introduction of what you need to know and the dates, that kind of thing. It's definitely not worth splitting this thing into two parts just to explain the basic facts about Up Close. Once I've done all that, we're going to flesh out the whole thing and go into the song by song with my guest, Alan Cozen. However, before we can do any of that, it is time for us to crack on with the... Housekeeping! So, what do we have in terms of news today, everyone? Well, in the grand tradition of the news segment here on Paul or Nothing, something has indeed dropped just this very morning, meaning I had to stop and then write more notes about it rather than recording as soon as I got up like I wanted to. Originally, I was just going to talk about the cryptic post that Macca put up on social media yesterday that got everyone in a bit of a tizzy. Basically, he put up a picture of a post box on Instagram and Twitter and instantly everyone was going, Oh my God, a new Fireman album! And admittedly, I got caught up in the hype a little bit too just before I went to bed and I was speculating wildly myself. But, and I was wildly speculating like everyone else was. But then I went to bed and then I wake up and the postbox image is just revealed to be a reference to his upcoming Royal Mail, uh, UK Royal Mail postal stamp collection. Yeah, that might be a bit of a disappointment for some there in the grand scheme of things, but, you know, fuck it. I always like new product to review here on the show. And hey, maybe someone in Macca's team, in his socials, will have seen all of the fireman buzz on social media and maybe mention it to Paul. Who knows? Now, when I say stamp collection, folks, let me just point out, okay, that this is more than just a few bits of piece of paper on the corner of your granddaddy's postcards. The Royal Mail's website here has just dropped a royal shit ton of products in conjunction with this release, and we're going to go through them live here on the podcast now. Let's just, let's just scroll through. Okay, 
under Paul McCartney, we've got 39 items here. I'm not sure if all of them are in conjunction here. No, uh, all of them are pre pre-order. Let's go on the next page. Available 28th of May. Yes, folks, all of this. <laughs> it bloody hell, this is this is absolutely insane. So, on page one, let's have a look. We've got the Paul McCartney presentation pack, which is like a little booklet and kind of cardboard uh, stock with all the stamps. Then you've got the Paul McCartney prestige stamp book, which is a proper cardboard book with all the stamps inside. We've got the medal cover and studio medal cover, which are, I think, are just alternate uh, kind of card cases for all of these stamps as well. I think it comes with a pick as well, which looks quite cool. We've got a framed stamp set. We've got the limited edition prestige stamp set. We've got the collector's set, a fan sheet, a souvenir folder, the regular bu bundle of first class stamps. Uh, we've got several sheet packs, another framed one. We've got the silver medal cover, the silver studio medal cover. Both of these are at 99 pounds each. Uh, we've got the bundle, which is now 55.29, down from 61. Uh, oh my God, we got uh, just Ram one. We got McCartney three stamps, uh, more medal packs, another bundle. Oh my gosh, a, a studio mount. So yeah, um, <laughs> this is ridiculous. This is just stamps. Oh my God. Oh, I think I might have to buy another another pack of uh, first class ones though. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of stuff for you all to dig into there. Me, I myself, before recording, picked up a copy of the Prestige Stamp book, because I'm a kind of prestige kind of guy, you know? Will I dedicate a whole episode to these stamps? Definitely not, but I'm sure I'll touch upon them in a future news segment or something like that. I am tempted, though, to buy up some extra stamps and offer to send out personalised Paul or Nothing postcards if you, like, join the Patreon or if you've been with me for a certain amount of time or something like that. You know, turning something nice into a money-making venture, as always. Pressing on, as I mentioned in the last episode, Dominic Fike gave his performance of Kiss of Venus on the Late Late Show with James Corden to promote Three Imagined. Of course, due to the pandemic, he didn't actually appear on the show. And for the interview segment, we, we had an awful Zoom call-style interview. But for the performance... They really turned things around, as we actually got something rather special. I thought we were just going to get him doing something on the keys, akin to Paul's Notorious Lady Madonna from that, from last year. But instead, he essentially recorded a brand new live music video to go along with this new kind of live arrangement of the song. Like, I'm not joking here, folks. He really does go all out. First of all, with the visuals, I mean... This is just better and more unique than most actual music videos I've seen, and this was just put together for a talk show appearance. Like, I really was impressed with these visuals. We get this kind of single shot of Dominic stood at the mic in a kind of storage warehouse or loft or attic, a classic, with his guitar, which was unexpected, I must say, all whilst these stagehands or production artists behind him build this kind of newspaper collage on this huge display, which reflects a lot of the new lyrics that he put into the song. And then the camera starts to spin around in that kind of la-la land way. And it's, uh, you know, it's clear that the camera's in the, in the center of the room. And it reveals the rest of the band playing along to the real track. You know, we get keys, drums, bass, that kind of thing. And the second cool thing about this performance is that he totally rearranges the song. Yes, he reimagines it. He reimagines it 
again. This is the Dominic Fike live version of Kiss of Venus. And essentially, all you need to know, essentially what, essentially you need, essentially you know everything you need to just from the fact that he's here on guitar. Obviously the version that we heard on 3 Imagine, the, ver the version we hear in the actual music video is very synth heavy. It's very, you know, silky smooth modern pop. Whereas this was an incredibly cool uh, stripped back rocking interpretation of the song that he put out there. I really was impressed. He seems to be a very diverse musician and his vocals here, folks, like he proves that he was not all that <laughs> assisted in the vocal department on uh, Three Imagined. Like, yeah, obviously this isn't live, live and they could have augmented stuff, but I really was impressed by this performance all in all. And the fact that he rearranged the song and made a new music video for it was just the exact amount of effort I like to see from a young artist like this. Like, it seems Dominic really is carrying the torch for Three Imagined at the moment. I would have liked to have seen more performances from the other artists involved. But hey, if this is all we get, I'm, I'm more than happy with that. Sadly, we've had another passing this week. Sadly, we've had yet another passing in the world of rock and roll this week. Legendary recording engineer and producer Al Schmidt has unfortunately passed away at the age of 91. Paul had a few words to say about him on his social media, and he said, So sad to hear of the passing of my friend Al Schmidt. Al was the lead engineer in charge of the Kisses on the Bottom sessions, and was a fantastic guy, besides being one of the world's greatest engineers. He always had a twinkle in his eye, and was ready for a laugh, but most importantly, when we had done what he thought was good, he always had, he always had a twinkle in his eye, and was ready for a laugh. But most importantly, when we had done what we thought was a good take and went into the control room to hear the playback, it sounded fantastic. His self-effacing skills always came through. I send my love to his family and will always remember him with great fondness. Thank you for everything, Al. Lots of love, Paul. And finally, in unrelated Spotify news, I know you always love these constant Spotify updates, you people over 45, you know, you grave motherfuckers. I know you love this kind of shit. Uh, the uh, sticking out of my back pocket Spotify playlist has now changed and it is now centred and themed around all of the songs that Paul has sung about and around birds. So you can pretty much guess what the entire playlist there is. But the only reason I'm really bringing this up is that this came in conjunction with one of those you gave me the answer kind of segments where there was only one question really. And it's just Paul talking about the use of birds as symbolism in his songs, and I thought it'd be quickly worth touching on. Uh, this comes as a question from Ella on Instagram. She says, there are, a lot, there are a lot of references to birds in your songs, like Blackbird, Single Pigeon, Jenny Wren, Long-Tailed Winter Bird, that kind of thing. Is there any specific symbolism behind birds in your songs? Paul replies, there really happen, that really happens because from an early age, I actually loved birds. I grew up on a housing estate in Liverpool in very ordinary circumstances, but nearby where I lived there were woods and fields, so I used to get out there and I always loved it when I saw birds or their nests, etc. I think one of the most memorable sights was seeing a skylark rising into the sky and seeing its sweet song and singing and sing I think one of the most memorable sights was seeing a skylark rising into the sky and singing its sweet song. So the answer is I love birds, but in my song, they sometimes turn into symbolic characters. There you go. And now the news is, fi 
And that is everything for the news, folks. Let's crack on with the plugs. To get in contact with, with the show, please email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Let me know your Paul McCartney stories. I always love reading your correspondence out here on the show. For day-to-day updates and for more instant access, follow us on our Twitter page, which is at McCartneyPod. For bonus Paul or Nothing content, for written blog form, uh, Paul or Nothing stuff, check out our sister blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on the socials. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. If you want to help out the show right away, in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a review, hit the thumbs up, like, whatever whatever podcasting platform you are on. If you could say something nice about us or boost us up in those algorithms, it would be very much appreciated. If you want to help out the show directly, though, if you want to help see the show grow, if you want to help keep the lights running, if you want to help, you know, keep... If you want to help keep me in Paul McCartney stamp money, or maybe, you know, you just want to buy me a coffee or a drink, maybe you just want to be... Maybe you're just really thankful for the show. Maybe you just really appreciate the work I do here on the show. Then please consider joining our Patreon family. You get all sorts of bonus content on there, video content scripts, early access... To- early access to podcasts as well as all sorts of bonus unreleased content that I can't even talk about on here and hey look if you like Paul or nothing and you have a few dollars to spare please consider joining our wonderful Patreon family people including Moti Ryber Christian Perry Richard Driver Chris Atkinson Richard Binnington Mr. B Teresa Brader Stephanie Miller Lou DiLonardo Cheryl McCoy Katrina S Sam Hode Anastasia L Robert Carabelli Warren Butson and my man Matt Phillips and with that folks now that all of the housekeeping is done it is time to move on to the background information on Up Close what was Up Close what what, what are we talking about here today well I'm going to tell you because like me only a few days ago I'm sure many of you might be either slightly or totally unfamiliar with the Up Close gig and I'm going to catch you up to speed and hopefully refresh the memories of those who might already know a little bit about it. If you haven't guessed already by my laboured intro to the whole thing, Up Close is essentially the sequel project, sequel gig, sequel TV special to MTV's smash hit episode of their Unplugged show, which in 1991 featured Paul McCartney. It was a very big, important show in terms of that show's run, It was a very important album in terms of Paul. It became the unplugged, the unofficial bootleg album. And that became one of the relatively outstanding successes in Macca's career at that time, especially compared to a lot of other stuff he was doing. And it makes sense that he would want to try and recapture that magic again. Now, whilst this show is a sequel, it is only in the way that it's another special produced by MTV. Paul rarely, if ever, does the exact same thing twice, and so Up Close is not an unplugged gig and is instead a proper Paul McCartney live experience, with the only difference being the size of the audience and venue. It should also be noted that, unlike Unplugged, which was mostly produced just to give the new drummer, Blair Cunningham, something to do as the new drummer, this new show, Up Close, was actually made to also plug their upcoming album off the ground as well as the new world tour which would both be debuting in only a couple of months time speaking of venues paul was clearly in the midst of his own 
personal Beatle revival phase. You know, clearly we were, you know, we're coming up to the anthology project, stuff like that. And it makes total sense why he would choose to perform this up-close gig at the Ed Sullivan Theatre, the very place where the Beatles had first premiered on American television screens all those years ago. This in itself is a pretty bold statement from Paul, and I can only imagine the hype that certain US Beatles megafans were experiencing during the lead-up to this show, especially since Paul really hadn't done all that much in the States since his world tour back in 89-90. To get the best coverage possible, like many shows of this ilk, the whole thing was actually made up of two recordings on two consecutive days, those being on the 10th and 11th of December 1992, with a crowd of around 750 people. The lineup of the band was completely unchanged from the Unplugged show, with Wixie on synth and keys, Blair Cunningham on drums, Robbie McIntosh on lead guitar, Hamish Stewart on guitar and Hamish Stewart on guitar and bass, and Linda doing her usual thing. There were two electric sets with an acoustic set in the middle. For the final four songs, Paul plays on a big old Yamaha piano. As we'll get into shortly, the setlist itself, like Unplugged, is incredibly unique within the grand scope of Paul McCartney's setlists, as not only does it contain a bunch of covers, but it also has a lot of songs, both Beatles and non, that Paul had never played before. Of course, I will also have to refer to the message slash email that I read out a couple of episodes ago, where one of the listeners of this very show wrote about their own experiences at the up-close performance. There were lots of details in that message that I implore you go back and listen to on our Three Imagined episode, but... The most important point he brought up was that I... But the most important point that this specific individual brought up that I couldn't find anywhere else that I thought was very interesting and should have been detailed more in the in the literature was the factor of the weather. The long and the short of it was that there was a huge storm predicted to happen in New York the night before. And whilst things did get quite bad, the snow never came. The snow never came. This meant that the gig wasn't cancelled, but loads of people had already cancelled their own travel plans, which meant lots of seats were empty. This meant that the user slash listener at SGL New York was able to queue outside of the gig in the cold and eventually be let inside of the venue to help fill up said seats and enjoy the show. Lucky bastard. Up Close finally premiered on MTV in America on Wednesday the 3rd of February 93, where it was repeated regularly over the next few months. In the UK, Up Close was transmitted on BBC One during the Easter weekend on uh, Bank Holiday Monday, actually, which was April 12th, 1993. Not sure how big either of the audiences were here or what the reception was, was like, or what the impact was like, which is a shame because there really isn't an awful lot written about this show, even online, but... Since this is one of those pre-Death of Linda events, it's hard to tell if the reason he never did something like this again was because of, you know, the loss of Linda, or whether this wasn't a great success, or whether he didn't like doing it, or whether it was because he wasn't working with, with that band anymore. You know, Paul isn't really going to do stuff like this again for a while. The only one that comes to mind, the next one that would come to mind for me would be like The Cavern in 99, have I got that correct? Let me know. Also, sadly, 
at the time of recording, there has been no formal official release of this performance in album form, unlike Unplugged, which did receive the quote-unquote official bootleg treatment. The only way you are able to view the or listen to the full tapes is through actual unofficial bootlegs. The first of these unofficial recordings to have the full set was a 1993 2CD bootleg called First Night, but now this show is mostly consumed either via the full broadcast, which is available on YouTube, both the gig and the NTV cut, which is helpful, as well as the up-close Ultimate Archive Collection fan bootleg from 2015. Whew. Anyway, folks, I think that is everything you need to know about this show that we don't go on to talk about in the episode itself. So it's time for me to stand aside now and welcome on my guest. So one, two, three... Let's go. And now, everyone, it's time for me to welcome today's guest, the man I'm speaking with today. As far as I'm concerned, is one of the true titans of the Beatles podcasting Illuminati through his co-hosting of the incredible things we said today. Not only that, but he has an incredible string of achievements in the real world as well, everyone. From 1991 to 2014, he was the writer at the New York Times, where he covered both classical music and culture. He's written for innumerable other publications, as well as the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, and more, as well as being the author of several of his own titles, including The Beatles, From the Cavern to the Rooftop. Of course, this all makes sense, as he is one of the few people I've ever had on this podcast who actually has his own Wikipedia entry. So, you know, <laughs> we are definitely moving up in the world, folks. Everyone, please welcome Alan Cozen to the show. Alan, what's going on, my friend? Nothing. It's, you know, still sort of semi-lockdown. Um, but uh, <laughs> great to be here, Sam. No, the pleasure is all mine. You know, I've been doing this for about five years now. And throughout that in, entire time, I've been worshipping at the church of things we said today. Really? I've had Ken on enough times now and it still it still feels special. So, you know, mm. let's just say I'm going to be going through Darren DeVivo's trash soon to try and find out when his schedule's free as well, you know? I'm sure Darren would love to be on. Oh, yes. Well, like, well, I mean, that's the best thing about this whole pandemic thing is that everyone's been free to come on podcasts, which is, you know, you've got to find the silver linings where you can. Absolutely. I always like to start these things with the most English question ever. Where are you calling from and what's the weather like? After I left the Times in 2014, I moved up to Maine, mainly because mm. my wife is from here. And so I'm living in a city called Portland, Maine. Portland is basically the closest Maine has to a city. Mm -hmm. It's uh, got uh, 66,000 people, which is about what was on my block in Manhattan. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice little town. It's, a, it's a kind of gray today. It's not, not precipitating in any way, but it's just it doesn't look that friendly out there. So, no, fair, fair enough. The light is wonderfully cascading off my fake image of uh, up <laughs> close behind behind me there. Um, before we go into today's topic, though, I want to just catch up on some of the more recent Macca releases. What did you think of McCartney 3? And are you excited for 3 Imagined? I liked uh, McCartney 3 a lot. Uh, I There really wasn't anything on it that, uh, you know... I would skip mm -hmm. on a playing like, you know, I might for 
Oui, Le Soleil, which is on... Um, <gasps> Why would you pick that one? Oh, my gosh. You, you, like, you've ruined this interview already, Alan. You've, 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 you've got off on the wrong foot there. So. I'm so sorry, but I don't like Oui, Le Soleil. <laughs> I think that, I think, you know, well, it's probably oh. the, the generation gap between us. You know, for me, disco and um, dance music was sort of like um, a, a, a turn to the South for... <laughs> music but uh yeah yeah i love this 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 album party three i liked a lot uh and it's kind of it's it's a little mysterious what what everything is on it because some of them are old tracks that he finished up mm-hmm. and some of them are brand new tracks he did you know totally during lockdown i think he uh was was very clever about um his singing on the album you know, I mean, he's obviously not unaware that his voice is a little bit rough these days. And um, uh, in concert, it's one thing, partly because, you know, concerts are pretty loud to start with and everybody knows the stuff and everybody is not really listening for the quality of his voice, you know. But on a new album, you don't really have much choice. And I think, you know, he wrote things that fit into his range. I think he used technology in an interesting way, Uh, you know, how much reverb is on things, how much he doubled the vocals, uh, how much is falsetto singing as opposed to full voice singing. And so he he basically was very smart about using his resources as they're available to him, you know, without having to fake it using technology to make the voice sound better. But I've always thought, you know, that, that this is his opportunity to become like one of those old blues guys, you know, just say, I went down and see my baby. You can do that. Uh, but uh, and now McCartney three imagines. I mean, you know, I, as usual, ordered it on both CD and vinyl. And uh, but and I'm not especially looking forward to it. I mean, I think the things I think the things that appeal most to me probably are the remixes of his tracks as opposed to other people's covers. Interesting. Um, that's that's because that's pretty much the exact opposite take I have of the entire thing. I'd rather have brand new i mean they're not brand new compositions obviously but i'd rather have new recordings of covers and it seems to be quite the 50 50 split which is interesting you don't really get that yeah yeah i mean it's it's an interesting album uh an interesting idea for a project anyway uh you know what it reminds me of a little bit i mean it's not the same at all but after we recorded ram he did three (laughs) you know and so to have a cover a cover of your whole album i think is just something that obviously appeals to him and this is a, a, a good way to do it is any probably a better way uh, than thrillington <laughs> thrillington is such a, a swear word for some fans but for me it's literally one of the highlights of the entire discography i'm a, i'm such a huge thrillington fan and to make three imagined have uh, connotations of thrillington is selling the album more to me i, I guess so I'm probably more excited now. You know, I mean, Thrillington was an interesting idea too. And the, and the, the interesting, one of the interesting things about it is Richard Hewson's involvement in it. Mm-hmm. This is, um, you know, he called Richard Hewson in 71, really just shortly after he finished Ram. And that isn't that far away from Let It Be. 
where Richard Hewson did the orchestration on Long and Winding Road that Paul has always hated so much. I mean, I don't think he blamed Richard Hewson. Richard Hewson was hired to do a job, he did the job. I think he blames Phil Spector and even more than that, he blames Alan Klein. But nevertheless, I, I thought it was sort of interesting that of all the arrangers out there to hire for this project, he hired Richard Hewson and basically told him to do whatever he wanted. And, you know, there, there's some interesting arrangements on there. And, you know, I, I can't say I put it on an awful lot, though. Uh, I may put it on less than Rue Le Soleil. <laughs> My gosh. No, I wish I had it on vinyl. I really do. I love kind of background musics from this catalogue. Like, for me, if I'm, especially if I'm writing notes for an episode, it's going to be holidays. It's going to be the Russian album, it's going to be rock and roll, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, you know, something that's not too intrusive, I guess. And that's why I like Uwe SLA. I always say it wrong. Uh, I'm sure people will write it and correct uh, correct that for me. But um, yeah, it's a, an interesting period, the idea of dance music McCartney. And I guess that's the era that we're going to be talking about today, you know, the early 90s. And I was born September 3rd, 1992. So this show we're talking about today is about three months after my birth. I am a babe in my mother's arms. And we've just had the very popular MTV Unplugged album. We've got uh, Off the Ground next year coming out. And in between, we have Up Close. And just a little peek behind the curtain, folks. I had no idea what this was. I, I wrote to Al, I contacted him, I was like, dude, I want to do an episode, I just want to have you on, on the show, do you have any ideas? And you mentioned Up Close, and thank you for that, I've had so much fun researching and watching this 20 times over the, over, over the last few days. I will say, for, for full disclosure, the podcast I do is chronological, I haven't gotten up to off the ground yet, I'm not fully versed in it, haven't even touched Unplugged yet, so I will rely on your expertise in in this uh, regard, but uh, what is your general opinion of the post-Flowers in the Dirt, post-World Tour era of McCartney? Yeah, you know, Flowers in the Dirt came as, um, in some ways, a big surprise. You know, there were the Elvis Costello collaborations and, uh, you know, in the first single from that, My Brave Face, I I just loved, you know, and I loved the video for it too, because as a Beatles collector, it's like, (laughs) all this stuff coming out of his vault, you know? Oh, yeah. And really, the album as a whole was um, after, you know, the previous one was pressed to play, mm. which had some good stuff on it, had some disappointing things on it. It was, um, you see, in the U.S., it was, it was another little difference. Um, he had gone to Columbia Records from Capitol, from EMI in 1977, and then Press to Play was the first one back on Capitol after his little Columbia period. So, whereas in England, it was probably just, you know, the, the straight march of albums. Here, it was, you know, the, you had this idea of, uh, okay, so what does Capital make of what he's doing now? What does Columbia make now that he's just left Columbia? You know, it's, it's, uh, it was, it, it, it seemed to have an overlay of record label politics that it, here, that it didn't have in the UK. And so Press to Play was sort of like, okay, this is his return to Capital. It's mixed. And then Flowers in the Dirt was just like, um, you know, what we would call a home run. I've got no idea what you would call it, you know, not being big over there. But 
you know, it just seemed, he seemed to, uh, in another baseball analogy, knock it out of the park, you know? <laughs> and, and so after that, you know, then he went on tour. He hadn't been on tour, you know, certainly not here in a very long time. I think he'd been here since uh, 1976, Swings yeah. of America, you know? And uh, so it was, it was great to see him out there playing again, but we didn't know if that would be followed up. And at first it wasn't, you know, there was that period between 1990, 1993, where, you know, he did those little secret gigs in England and he did Unplugged in England, but he didn't do much here. And so up close was, uh, wow, he's, he's actually going to do this in New York uh, and at, the, at Sullivan Theatre. So I was able to get tickets to that. And um and it, and it was it was really a great experience because um, I mean subsequently I've seen him in a bunch of relatively small places. I mean the Ed Sullivan Theater is maybe it's less than a thousand people, maybe mm -hmm. seven hundred. Uh, I saw him then at the Cavern in '99. I saw him at um, a place called the Lone Star Roadhouse, which is really just sort of a bar in New York, and it was Buddy Holly week. And they were doing a show of Buddy Holly tunes because there was a Buddy Holly musical that had just opened. And, you know, as you and all your listeners know, he owns a Buddy Holly catalog, apart from idolizing Buddy Holly himself. Um, you know, the Buddy Holly week was a big deal. So the Crickets came and played at uh, Lone Star Roadhouse and Paul got up and sang a few numbers without his bass, just standing there singing into a microphone. Wow. So that was kind of a trip. I also saw him in, in 2007. He did a couple of small gigs around the time of uh, Memory Almost Full. Mm -hmm. um, he did one in, in Los Angeles at Amoeba Records, which has now been you know released as a... And you, saw the, you were there at the Amoeba gig? No, I wasn't at the Amoeba oh. Records, but I oh. was at, in New, he did one at the same time in New York. Right. At a place called uh, the Highline ballroom I think it was another relatively small place and I really like these small gigs of his I mean it's a trip to see him and I've also seen him in Yankee Stadium in Madison Square Garden you know and those are the big shows with the video and the lights and and the whole deal and their big production number performances what I like about things like Up Close and these other ones that I've mentioned is that it's just Paul playing in a room. There's no fancy lighting. Mm. There's no video. There's no film. There's no, uh, you know, screen showing him because you're so far away you can't actually see him. It's just you're in a room. His band is there. They're playing. It's no frills. And I really, really like that. And I... I guess he does too, because he does it every now and then. Mm. I think, I think he just wants to get in touch with that side of, you know, playing in a small place where you can see everybody in the audience and everybody can see you. And you're not worried about the timing of, you know, your remarks between songs because, mm. you know, in the big show, that's what happens when the lighting array moves into a different position and, and, you know, the timing is very important. It's very tightly choreographed. It doesn't always look it, you know, but you can tell. I mean, he's like a mega professional in terms of putting on a show. But this lets him be loose. 
And as you could see, and especially in the complete version of Up Close that is out there on uh, what we call Dutch imports. <laughs> on popular video streaming websites, yes. Yes. We're not going to name brands here on the show. We're like, we're like the BBC, you know. <laughs> okay. So yeah, you know, it's uh, you you could see it in that in in the full version of the show. What they broadcast was a little more tightly constrained because they only had, uh, I guess, the broadcast must have been an hour and a half. But mm. you know, with commercials cut out and stuff, it comes out to about an hour nine. And there's a lot of interview footage put in. So they had to cut a lot of the songs. I'm always a fan of just show it as it happens, you know, mm -hmm. show me the whole tape. I don't really need to hear more interviews right now. You can have a separate special with just an interview. That'd be fun. Oh, no, no, Alan, we are going to get on to, I mean, I'm going to make a fuss every time Paul mentions one of the classic anecdotes in this special, because it is... It is a crash course in every single anecdote Paul loves to tell these days. It's you need a drinking game to watch up close. You really, you really do. <laughs> have 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 a shot every time he needlessly rearranges a Beatles song. Mm -hmm. There we go. But yeah. um, so you got tickets to this professionally? Yeah, I was writing for the Times at the time, and uh, I had already become uh, what was in effect the Times' Beatle desk. I always say it's because our pop guys care about stuff that happened either before 1960 or since last Tuesday. Right. And the Beatles was in that period where they, they just, you know, they knew about it. They just, you know, I mean, but uh, our, I think it, it happened when our chief pop critic, John Perellas reviewed video that came out. Um, it was from, the TV show around the Beatles, but it was marketed as Ready Steady Go Special Edition because Dave Clark of Dave Clark Five fame owns all that material. Right. And he put that out. And uh, John reviewed it as an actual live performance, which is, as you know, it wasn't really. They recorded it in the studio the day before and then lip synced to it, mm -hmm. sometimes actually sang live to it. So you get two vocals going on. So he reviewed that and I sent him a note saying, you know, John, it, it actually isn't live. This is what happened. And he said, you know, I knew there was something wrong with that. Um, and then a few months later, when the first CDs came out, he called and said, look, why don't you cover those instead of me? And you can get into your whole disco mania thing about mono mixes and stereo mixes and all the stuff that you're into. And then suddenly every time the Beatles did something. Um, basically, I was covering it or doing preview pieces or interviews or, and reporting on it for the time. So that was a lot of fun. It was different than what I was doing day to day, which was reviewing classical music, you know. Oh, I mean, just to say, the 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 strength I had to, to enact to not just get you to come on and do one of Paul's classical albums, you know, the... I was like, oh no, Two Legs has already done that. I can't, yeah, I, can't, yeah. I, can't I can't, do that one. You know? Yeah, well. You know what? I'm getting Alan Cozen on to do Twin Freaks. What? You know? <laughs> yeah, no I one, no one saw that coming, did they? <laughs> right. Yeah, so um, Up Close was um, really shortly after I started being the Beatles desk. And, and I, didn't, I didn't write about it, I don't think. I just went and uh, it was a lot of fun. I was in the balcony. 
I okay. think it was front row of the balcony. So, you know, I'm just looking down at the stage and there is Paul and his band playing Penny Lane and fixing a hole and, you know, all this stuff. And, uh, and, uh, and it was just great, you know. So something I didn't notice up until physically watching this was that Chris Whitten's not a part of this and we've got Blair Cunningham, so we've got a new version of the band. Right. Uh, do, you, do you prefer this lineup more than, say, the Flowers one or, say, the new touring band he's got? Um, well, the previous band, I think um, Blair Cunningham is the only difference. Yes. Is, um, so it's essentially the same band. Um, I don't know if I have a preference between those two drummers. Mm-hmm. I think both bands were really good. The, the, and, and in today's band, the one um, holdover is Paul Wicks Wickens. And he is a master. I mean, if you, you know, you're, you're watching that show up close and um, in Penny Lane doing all the flutes and trumpets on his keyboard and, um, you know, quite deftly. And, you know, it's one thing to have sounds programmed into your keyboard, but there's also something, it's also something to do with the way you're playing it, whether it sounds like a mm-hmm. trumpet attack or just a keyboard with a trumpety sound. And, mm-hmm. and I thought he did a spectacular job on those things. The current band I really like. I, I, I don't know whether I'd say I like it better than the 89 and 93 bands, mm-hmm. but they are really, really good. Uh, you know, player for player, those guys can do anything that, uh, that Paul requires of them. And whether it's uh, an exact copy of a Beatles track or uh, you know something new. I, I'm a little surprised that he doesn't use them that much on his recordings. Mm. You know, sometimes there's like one or two of them or three. You know, it it depends. Sometimes they get into the sessions, but mostly he's using it as a touring band, and uh, it's kind of the opposite of Ringo and the All Stars. You know, <laughs> Ringo for a while had this group called the Roundheads as well. And the Roundheads he made records with, and then he went out and toured with the All-Stars, which was, you know, all the old rockers from different uh, decades. Uh, and I always thought, you know, well, the, you know, I've said so he did a couple of shows with the Roundheads at the bottom line, which is another small place. I like seeing Beatles in small places, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and I thought they were really good. And I wrote in a review once that I thought he should be touring with them. And the word came back from his manager, you know, yeah, tell him not a chance. <laughs> I don't know why, but... Uh, Look, people want to see Ringo and then also hear Joe Walsh do Rocky Mountain Way, you know, the people have yeah. spoken. Yeah, yeah. Well, Joe Walsh could be in the roundheads, I suppose, you know, could do it. I mean, hell, he's brother-in-law now. Oh, is he? Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. I'm going to excise that from, from the idea. Go, yes, of course. Yes, I knew that fact. Yes, definitely. Yeah, he married Barbara Bach's sister. Gosh, you learn something new every day. Thank you for that, Alan. Of course, Unplugged was massive. Was there a lot of hype surrounding this gig outside of the fact that it was in uh, being shot in New York? Um, I can't say there was a lot of hype because I'm pretty sure that it was difficult to get a ticket. You know, so if you have a lot of hype, you know, it it, it serves one purpose and it, <laughs> and it creates other problems. Well, you know? like, well, was it public or was it? just like a promotional thing like you know club sandwich members were like would win tickets and stuff or it was probably something like that i i really don't remember how i don't remember how people not in the press got in <laughs> um 
but um, because I don't think there were 700 some uh, press people there, I, I think a lot of them were just sort of lucky fans. Mm -hmm. You know, when he does these things, there's there's always a way. You know, a radio station will say, "We have ten tickets for Paul's." I don't think they were calling it up close yet. Paul's performance at the Ed Sullivan Theater for MTV or VH1. Next ten callers will get them. Wow. Stuff like that, and then usually you would go. In some cases, you would actually have to go to Eastman and Eastman um, on the east side of Manhattan and pick up a ticket or a wristband or you know whatever it is that you were uh, getting to get you into the show. I'm normally used to having guests on this show who say stuff like, so yeah, I broke through a window and then I got into the studio that way and I hid in a vent for half an hour and then a tea room and then I got to see Paul. So <laughs> this has been a nice refreshing pace, you know, someone who was actually legally allowed to uh, see Paul at, at that time. I'm guessing you weren't there going, can I have your pick? Can I have your pick? No, I wasn't the one. <laughs> <laughs> there was obviously someone there who was doing that, but, uh, but it, it wasn't me. I was up in the balcony, so. Yeah, it definitely remind, reminded me of the uh, the really good 2018 Cavern gig, uh, the, uh, the kind of Egypt station era one was like, turn off your phones, please. I'm trying to, I'm trying to work here, guys. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Poor, yeah. poor, 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 poor. Wasn't there much like, pre-arrangement stuff before the show did Paul come out and say hello to everyone did he arrive publicly did he arrive privately or he arrived privately in fact in the broadcast version you see a bit of that you see him going in the oh that oh that's real that's not just a staged <laughs> like stinging both but that's where the that's where the um the artist entrance is mm -hmm. on the side street there so so you saw that he didn't come out and talk first or anything like that and you know warm up the crowd whatever I, I don't think he necessarily needs to but uh you know they just filed out on stage as they would at a concert and uh and started playing you know with 20 flight rock which was also a surprise you know you you, you don't expect him to start with a cover first of all now uh, this is an interesting period for a uh, Paul McCartney set list because you know, my entire fandom has been in the era of start with a Beatles song, third song is off the new album, then 12th and 13th song are off the new album, end with the medley, live and let die is in the second, third, you know, all these things that, you know, we see every every, every day. And yeah. when I first started the show, I was terrified of like Tripping the Life Fantastic. I was like, oh no, there's Flowers in the Dirt's tracks on this. And now it's one of my favourite albums. And yeah. One of the things you get in this period is weird Paul McCartney set lists that don't look like anything else that you see today. And right. purely for that, they are a wonderful little time capsule. Um, obviously, a large portion of this gig is music that was from the future. You know, Big Boys Bickering was going to be an album track as far as this concert is concerned. Had any of this music leaked at all? Had you heard anything from off the ground at this point? You know, I was, I was, when I was listening to this the other day, I was trying to remember if I had had an advance by then. Um, I, I kind of doubt it, you know, he tends not to send his advances out months before. And mm -hmm. this was December, the album came out in, you know, maybe what, February, something like that, around, around the time this was. Uh, February, 1993, yeah. Yeah, around the time this was broadcast, this was broadcast early in February. And, you know, and he says in a couple of the intros, you know, you, you don't know this yet, but uh, it's on the next album. And um, now that for Paul, 
uh, is very unusual. I mean, he goes on tour now and plays like maybe two songs from his latest album. And, you know, and, and I always wonder, well, why? I mean, you literally are touring. Well, maybe he's not because he's a special case, but an artist mm -hmm. literally tours to promote an album. You wouldn't play just two tracks from it, you know? So I've been sort of surprised at, at, at how few new things he plays when he when he goes out. Um, but this had not only not only were they new, but nobody heard them at all. You know, they were they were uh, really fresh for everybody. I'm pretty sure I had not heard the album. Funny thing happened when I did hear the album, though. I mean, I got invited to a listening in a recording studio with other journalists. Oh. Um, so All wasn't there. <laughs> uh, but I had spoken to Mark Lewison um, earlier in the day, and he had heard it. He was he was at the time working for MPL. He was uh, he was still there then. Oh, that's that's cool. He was at a club sandwich, and um, and so he'd heard it, and he said to me, "Yeah, this is Paul's best stuff since the White Album." So. <laughs> Uh, you know, we're sitting there waiting for the playing to begin, waiting for a few other people to turn up or whatever. And I'm just talking to his publicist. And I said, yeah, you know, I spoke to a friend in England who heard it. And he said, it's the best thing Paul has done since the White Album. And he said, oh, yeah, that's interesting. The next thing that happens is there's like a, another press conference or something like that. And his, <laughs> his publicist comes out and says, Alan Cozen of the New York Times says that this is Paul's best music since, since the White Album. And, you know, hey, I didn't say that. I mean, it's good stuff. <laughs> I don't know that I would compare it to the White Album, but um, I think I know what Mark meant in a way, though. It's definitely eclectic in that sense. I listened to Off the Ground uh, on my bike ride today, and it was, it's, a, it's a fun listen. It, it really is. It's definitely got a problem in terms of I'm not sure who it appeals to in terms of a commercial market. I'm not sure who would buy this album, but I'm glad it exists as a collection of really well-crafted songs. Really uh, unexpectedly laid back as well. Like so many songs just start off with, you know, some brushes and a little acoustic line or something. Like mm. Peace in the Neighbourhood takes about eight hours to get going. I was like, oh, this is the chorus. Oh, cool. We're here now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there are a few things like that. But, you know, when... I was listening to the show again. It's been a long time since I've uh, have played off the ground, you know, just for its own sake. Mm -hmm. But listening to all the things that turn up on this show, I mean, you've got Looking for Changes, Biker Like an Icon, Big Boys Bickering, Hope of Deliverance, Peace in the Neighborhood, Come on People. You know, it's quite a lot. And um, and I really enjoyed them. I thought, you know, this, this album doesn't get the respect that I think it should get, possibly because Flowers in the Dirt was so strong. But in a way, this seems to me like Flowers in the Dirt and this could be a double album in the way that Tug of War and Pipes of Peace could have been a double album. And, you know, they're, they're of a kind. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I was sorry that it, it didn't... Um, that it didn't take off, you know, quite like Flowers in the Dirt did, that, it, that mm. people don't hold it up as one of their favorite albums the way they do with Flowers in the Dirt, because it has a lot of good stuff on it. I don't know, like you say, who it's, who it's intended for, but, you know, something like Hope of Deliverance, it's a nice, bright, cheery song about, you know, hope. I mean, you can't, you, can't, you know, you can't object to that. Yeah. 
I, I hear so much negativity about specific songs. Like, I mean, we'll, we'll like, get onto them later, but that always gets me curious because albums that I hear are awful, I get I get very interested in. I heard a lot of negative stuff about McCartney 2. I heard a lot of negative stuff about Press to Play and Flowers in the Dirt and Pipes of Peace. They're also of my favourite albums now. So for you to call uh, Off the Ground perhaps similar to Pipes of Peace yeah, in its comparison to Flowers in the Dirt, that excites me a lot because I actually put Pipes of Peace ahead of Tug of War. I think it's a lot more consistent. I think it's a lot less full of itself uh, in terms of having George Martin on as a, as a producer. And Side 2 is a lot more uh, subversive than anyone gives it, gives it credit for. Mm-hmm. Though... I think perhaps I would have liked to have seen maybe rather than say come on people in this gig, maybe something like Mistress and Maid or Cosmically Conscious, something like that. Right. I mean, that gig where Paul was the it was for the David Lynch Foundation, where he does right. the entirety of Cosmically Conscious. Right. I'm just, I'm just glued to the screen. I'm like, and this is not on the White Album because why? <laughs> You know, yeah. Replace Bungalow Bill or Wild Honey Pie with that. Why not? <laughs> Maybe that's what Mark had in mind when he said, <laughs> "Maybe he'd heard the full version of Cosmically Conscious." Yes. Now, anything Rishi Kesh related, it's like the White Album. You know, it's just it's just yeah. listen to take. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So. We are going to talk about the main show itself, but we'll also touch on all the other songs that were cut. And I think there's only one example of something being rearranged in the in the track listing, so it should be easy enough to follow. You're all clever people. You should be all right. We start with some black and white footage, very artsy, very 90s indeed. And uh, it's Paul getting out of his limousine. Again, Paul, since Broad Street, stop opening your projects with you in the backs of expensive cars. It doesn't look good. It doesn't yeah. look like an average person. And then Paul gets out. He signs one thing for one fan, which is that that's why I was thinking it looks staged. It's like there's just one guy there like, oh, hello, Mr. McCartney. I can have Thank you. And then the door shuts behind McCartney. What does it say? Ed Sullivan Theatre. Uh, Paul's got a lovely, fantastically 90s woolly coat and sunglasses thing going on. Not sure what that look is. Although I've got a couple of photos of my dad from that era that look suspiciously similar. <laughs> then we get some interview footage of Paul. He was nervous doing yesterday on the original Ed Sullivan show. They're kind of setting the stage there. We get a few other cutaways. Oh. He, he is in error there. Oh. Yes. The the first Paul the first Ed Sullivan show, which drew the 73 million people is not the one where he sang yesterday. That This was on February 9th, 1964. He sang yesterday on the Ed Sullivan Show appearance on uh, that was taped on August 14th, 1965 and broadcast on September 12th, 1965. That makes so much sense because the original, like if you're asking an American a, a question about the Beatles of a certain age, you ask them about the Ed Sullivan and then you cut to the footage of it. It's not Paul with a solo acoustic guitar. It's all four of them doing a right. want to hold your hand, is, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, when did yesterday come out? 1965. So it wouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the middle of their career. That's so funny. I mean, it's not quite as cringy as when Paul was uh, doing uh, too many people. And then he goes, this is for the Wings fans. I'm like, oh. 
or uh, you need a nerd just off stage, just with like a little type of like, you know, little keyboard going, no, 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 that's incorrect, incorrect, incorrect. We get some interview footage of the uh, people uh, at the show. Again, lots of Americans telling us how significant the original appearance was. I cannot fathom how important something that something culturally would be, I guess. Like culture so homogenized now. I mean, if the Beatles appeared now, then they might be on one of the 10 streaming services you don't have. Like, oh, you know, oh, the Beatles are on Netflix. Oh, well, I've got Hulu and HBO. So I don't know who the Beatles are, sorry. But you've got- Yeah, they would make, and- they'd make an HBO or a Netflix special or something like that, I suppose. It's, <laughs> it's a totally different universe than, than it was then. Oh yeah, and like just, just I mean, just the idea that you'd be sat in front of a TV with mom and dad discovering new music together—that's alien to me. You know, for me, it's picking up my dad's iPod or going through his old vinyl collection. That's discovering music, but that's obviously secondhand from his generation. You know, mm-hmm. a big musical event I, I can think of. Literally, the only things like that would, would be something like McCartney playing at the Queen's Jubilee. Or something like that, something where like the whole country would be watching. But yeah, the Ed Sullivan show is pretty uh, in- incomparable, like many of the aspects of the Beatles' career, really. And as you mentioned earlier, we start with 20 Flight Rock. <laughs> song that Paul has made every band he's ever played with learn to play to perfection from Denny Sywell through Denny Lane, Blair Cunningham all the way up to Abe Laboreal they all have to go bow 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 and I don't think he's ever performed it badly do you? Not that I've heard no you know as he says in the uh, bit of interview that they put in there uh, that was the song that impressed John so much at the Wilton Fett in you know, 1956 when they met that he could he knew all the words to 20 Flight Rock so obviously that's an important little piece for him and we didn't hear it for quite a long time the Beatles never did it um, on the BBC or in Hamburg or any of the places that's so strange actually yeah why the hell didn't the Beatles do 20 Flight Rock that's, so, that's a good point yeah. I mean they must have done it but no place where there was a microphone so that we could hear uh, what the Beatles did with it. But, you know, then suddenly it's been sort of revived. I, I think um, this might have been the first time. It, uh, it, it was on the Russian album as well, so that would right. have been out a couple, a, couple, a couple of years before. So right. he's definitely got it, got it fresh. Yeah, so the Russian album was recorded in like 86, 87 and came out around 90, 91. 
it was uh, that was recorded at basically the auditions for what became the 1989 touring band. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, you're right. He put everyone through the paces with bloody rock when he put it no, down. No, I just you know the Puggins Hall rehearsals before Wings finally broke up. I just I just picture Lawrence Juber and Denny Lane and Steve Holly just grey in the face and just oh, we're we're really good musicians. Can we do something other than bow 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 bow? Oh. Like Lawrence Jube is a classically trained guitarist. You can't make you can't make him play Twenty Fly Rock Paul. You can't. You really can't. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think this is a really good version. Like you say, a very unexpected way to open any Paul McCartney set list. Really. Yeah. There's also a great line in this performance where he's like, "I've got the strangest feeling of deja vu. I feel like I've been before. I don't know what it is. Some previous life, probably." And yeah. like, ah, oh, Paul, you know how to give a little wink to the audience, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he likes doing that kind of thing. He didn't do all the crowd work, which I hate, though, uh, as, at least as far as, well, you know, the, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's more for the big stadium things, you know. I think he kind of, I think he kind of likes the feeling of <laughs> 20,000 people responding to that, you know, whereas 700 people, mm, once you've heard 20,000 people do it, yeah. 700 people isn't going to make it doesn't, for you. Doesn't cut it anymore. That's funny. Then in second place, we have our first new song and one that we haven't properly covered here on the show. So this is a little sneak peek for our off the ground episode whenever we get around to it. This is Get Out of My Way. Paul McCartney stuff. What was your reaction? Um, you know, I, I like I like it as a song, and uh, it's in his introduction. He basically tells you why you're going to like it as a song. He talks about you know Chuck Berry and that kind of uh, you know rocking basic sound, which is what this has. You know, you got no strings, you got no fancy stuff. You just have a rocker, and it's uh, you know. I'm going to see my baby tonight, get out of my way. You know, it's uh, basic, totally basic. And he can do basic really well, you know. Fancy pretty well too. <laughs> but uh, but this was the other the other side of the coin. And, uh, and there's a bunch of that on off the ground. So uh, this was a, probably a good introduction to, to the album. <sighs> I've got to disagree with you there. I really, I really have. I, I, I think this this might be the worst rendition of off the material material, yeah. uh, off, off the ground. Yeah, a little off the ground material. Yeah, I, I think the fact that he's obviously doing this with the band he's in the studio with really helps. And a lot of the ones we're going to talk about today are 
pretty immaculate. They are album quality, you know, there are, there are very few differences. However, this is a case of a song that I don't like from the album that I think is also done quite poorly. I mean, dad rock might be the best phrase for this one. It feels a bit, uh, you know, I'm driving down Highway 66 because my second marriage failed kind of kind of rock. You know, it, uh, it doesn't have that bite or grit. And, you know, I'm thinking I've had enough. I'm thinking angry. I'm thinking fake Paul anger, whereas real Paul anger, as we know, is masqueraded and hidden behind obscure cryptic lyrics and he'll just shout them instead like i don't think he was actually angry at tomato ketchup during monkberry moon delight or anything obviously it's about the beatles i don't know i kind of find it's a bit of an empty song it's just him going get out of my way that's a good idea for a lyric let's get it down yeah and also he's at he's at the point where he's not opening stuff with beatles material and this is one of the few periods where i'll say yet yeah, perhaps this should have just been replaced with got to get you into my life or something, you know, just, just okay. give us that crowd pleaser. But you you feel it's done better on the album than it was on the show? I don't think they're done particularly well either, but I do prefer the album version, yeah. Mm, okay. But then we do come on to something a lot stronger, I think, here. Paul's going to lay his nuts on the table here with a ballsy Beatles number. It had never been played before by this point. A lot of the Beatles stuff by this point... Uh, in this show hadn't been played. This is Fixing a Hole. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in and stops my mind from wandering where it will go. show uh, Talking Head, Paul talks about how a man knocked on his door one day before the sessions and this is, turns into the famous Jesus came to the Sergeant Peppers uh, sessions story. Have another shot, folks, of course. I don't have a fancy way to put this. I mean, you must have just lost your mind. Fixing a hole, never been done before, Beatles fan, you're there. Yeah. I'd have yeah. fallen off the balcony. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's sort of... Um... It, it probably got me thinking about about the fact that um, the Beatles and their audience were a little bit out of sync in a certain way. Uh, you know, when they stopped touring in 66, it was still the screaming time, you know? When you go to a Beatles concert, you don't hear anything. And then they come up with Sgt. Pepper and they just were not inclined to go out and tr even try and play that stuff, which they didn't really have the technology to do unless they were gonna hire a bunch of backing musicians. Um, but, you know, had they gone out again in 69, as the Stones did, um, they would have found that suddenly in those few years, audiences grew up and they just wanted to listen to the band play. 
So fixing a hole, I'm thinking, you know, not only is this, you know, it's a an arrangement that is pretty close, at least in the first part of it, to the album, showing that, yes, indeed, this stuff can be played live. I mean, obviously, they have better technology now. Uh, Wix can just hit the harpsichord uh, button on his keyboard, and there you go. Um, but also that... Uh, you know, it, it would have. This would have been not only the first time they, that he played it live, but that people were actually sitting there listening closely to it and mm. just sort of letting it wash over them in all of its pepperness. You know, because it was a pretty close arrangement, at least until it gets you know away into the song, where I think he loosens up a little bit and allows for the kind of things that can happen live and the kind of things that these band members can bring to it you know, didn't let them, you know, totally go crazy with it. But, you know, it's, uh, the harmonies are good. It's, you know, the, the looseness just comes towards the end where, uh, you know, there's a little bit in his lead vocal uh, and uh, a bit in the in the backing bands and the guitar playing, you know, it, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, let's not make this sound like a wax museum here. We'll, we'll, you know, play it as a live band playing it, but really close to the album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I a, loved it. That's uh, pretty much exactly how I feel about it. I, I've just got, I've just got written here that it's a, a weird middle ground between a complete fresh reimagining and not changing anything at all. It seems like very little has changed, but then it, I'm sure if you break down each individual couple of bars, you're like, oh, okay, there's actually quite a lot going on here. But yeah, we've just we could just do a separate hour-long chat about Wix in this show and what he does. Yeah, and to say that he, you know, pressing the harmonium button is is obviously is obviously a bit, of, a bit of an understatement, really. I mean, what 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 he does here blew me away, and the cameraman knows how good Wix is here because it cuts to him so much more than it like cuts to Blair or Linda or or, or anything, and it'll just be like Wixie just doing these incredible counter melodies that you, that normally a whole band would have to do. Right. And it makes sense that, you know, 1989 onwards, Paul is just able to do stuff that he never thought he was able to do. He never attempted fixing a hole on the 76 tour, for example, you know? Gosh, I don't think that would have sounded very good at all. Though, you know, Thaddeus could have could could have given the uh, penny the penny lane piccolo trumpet a good a good whack, I reckon. Yeah. I mean, on the, on, on the 76 tour, I think you might have actually had to bring a separate harpsichord with them. I'm not sure that you had an electronic keyboard that can convincingly do it back then. Well, maybe. I mean, they had synths. It's another time, baby. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You, you can get a harmonium on your phone now. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, the thing is that, like, apart from the fact that we never heard Fixed in the Hole played live before this... You know, until he got down to rehearsing it and putting this arrangement together, Paul wouldn't have either because the Beatles recorded that sort of, you know, track by track and basic rhythmic track and then and then adding everything to it. There was never like a live yeah. performance of Fixing a Hole. It was a studio creation. So that's the yeah. Oh, my gosh. Late Beatles stuff. Yeah, that's what makes the rooftop gig especially special you know just the fact they are playing stuff off the new album as a band together ah oh, sergeant pepper on the roof that would have been cool yeah uh, would have been impossible but it would have been cool 
Um, then in between the next two songs, Paul talks one of the factors in his life that he finds really important, but no one else probably finds important at all, which is the idea of him and George being symmetrical at the mic, a left-handed guy and a right-handed guy and how they can share mic space. I'm like, Paul, I bet you've bored so many people with that fact at a dinner party. It's like, it's not a big part of the Beatles' success. It's your incredible music, singing and songwriting. It wasn't the fact that you also happen to be left-handed. Calm down a bit, Paul. Yeah. Then that goes into a trademark shaking the head origin story. Like Spider-Man or Superman or Batman, you know, it's these classic origins. Then we go into the second song from the upcoming album. And this is another one I really love. This is Looking for Changes. had loads of the Friends of the Earth stuff that was associated with it. I've heard this song's too preachy. Do you agree with that at, at all? Well, you know, it is, but it's meant to be. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's a message song, and this is the message that they wanted to get out. This one was uh, really less about ecology, although there's a, a link, than, you know, animal, mm. animal rights or, you know, the, the right not to be eaten by somebody. Uh, you know, they um, they had at this point become fully vegetarian, and uh, even that they're not they're not singing about uh, okay, you know, give up your burger. They're singing about animal experimentation here. You know, it's it's uh, you listen to the lyrics and 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 also you know, they did a video for it where they had footage of some of this animal experimentation, and it's you know it's a. You can say that it's preachy, but they actually are angry about something, Paul and Linda. This was a big issue for both of them. And uh, and they just wanted to get a song out there saying, you know, they, they have these guys doing things where they stick something in an animal's brain and see what it does. What do you think about that, listeners, fans of mine? You know, you think that, you know, it's not just about getting up and dancing. We want to tell you something that... Uh, you know, we think will make the world a better place. So, you know, it, it's because it is what it is. It's not, uh, you know, gotten into the all-time playlists of, you know, great McCartney things. But uh, I, I give him credit for, you know, getting out there and uh, and putting it so sort of boldly, you know, you know talking about the experimentation and in, in not just in sort of nice fuzzy terms. It's, you know... Mm -hmm. They stick these things in their brains, folks. You know, so uh, yeah, it's uh, I, 
I see what they're trying to do. I can see why it's not, you know, uh, uh, you know, one of the top hundred Paul McCartney hits. But uh, I, th I think it's important that he did it when he did it. Honestly, I think this is a, a real slept on track. I would have loved this to have been released in 93, backed with the White Coated Man by Linda on the B-side. Right. That could have been something really fun, like a future record store day release. Come on. And then yeah. you send and you give the proceeds to charity. Right. Yeah. Someone someone get on that, folks, write to NPL. Also, just in terms of like the song being too explicitly about its topic, I think the chorus is actually quite subversively universal. Like if you're not particularly paying attention, the idea of looking for changes isn't immediately synonymous with animal activism, you know? Just the like you can just sing, you know, looking for changes. It's quite a nice lyric in itself. It's true. Um, Although, just in terms of this arrangement, it's got the Wings Over America treatment, which I love, which is play it 15% faster and add 10% more hard rock. Done. Mm -hmm. Good to go. And that's a very good way to transpose a Paul McCartney album. Yeah. Of course, we've got a swear word in this song. Oh, my gosh. The bastard left his head off. Oh, my gosh. I bet, well, I bet, I bet Paul felt cool. That's just to get you prepared for big boys bickering. <laughs> I will see when when I saw the video on YouTube, I didn't know it wasn't the the broadcast version, and I was like, "Oh, okay, I'll watch the broadcast." Oh, no, big boys bickering's been cut. I wonder why. I wonder why. <laughs> Although it's it's not quite as bad as you know John Lennon. How do you sleep? You boop, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Also, I've got to say something slightly negative, and I'm going to get a lot of hate from BC the Beatles and another kind of mind for this. Linda doesn't look cool on the stage anymore. She looks like my mom on stage now. And I have a theory that I think she may have... Obviously, Linda was tragically taken from us, so we, we don't know what her role, if anything, would be in the modern Paul McCartney touring band. And I know that she wasn't a dedicated live touring artist. That wasn't her main shtick. Right. I think she may have stepped down in the mid-90s. I'm not saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm, that's just my feeling that that would have happened. You know uh, that I'm working on a McCartney book series, right, uh, with, with Adrian. Oh, there. yes. I am waiting for that pre-order button to appear on my screen. And Adrian... Uh, I was talking to Adrian this morning and he ran into an interview from Linda in 1978 when she said she wants to stop touring. She doesn't want to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and as you know, I mean, from the very beginning, I mean, she never was the one clamoring to be in the band <laughs> or wanted her to be in the band. And so she agreed to do it, but it was, it was hard for her. And in the, especially way, way before this, 20 years before this show, she was taking a lot of stuff from, you know, people like me, <laughs> well, from <laughs> critics, you know, from, from everybody, not, and, and, uh, uh, other musicians. Um, I'm sometime. sure Robert Christgau probably tore her a new one. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, also, you know, engineers i mean they were they were the engineers tended to be pretty nice to her but if you ask what they thought of her musicianship they say something else but they also will point out you know but it's not like she was begging to do this 
you know, she was always saying that she was uncomfortable, you know, and she was, and she was not happy to be taking all this criticism for something that she didn't especially want to do. I felt I was looking at her during this show and, and I, I felt that um, she, it, this point actually looks kind of comfortable in the role you know she's not sort of uh you know we know where all the good keyboard stuff is coming from wix you know? <laughs> i mean i heard from a very uh a very blackballed blacklisted man named <clears throat> jeffrey juliana that all of linda's parts were entirely done by wix prior to each show and i i, I can't if that's even if that was true I would bury that truth and make sure that ne that that never got out. I, I can't I can't take that the the idea that she's just there going. Yeah, I don't know. Um, really, he's, don't the, know. he's not the best source of this. Let's just get that clear, folks. My source here is not legit at all. He's, uh, but I mean, comparing to like you know those university tours and stuff, what she's doing in the Flowers in the Dirt here is actually quite competent. It's actually very very strong and. Even like towards the the end of Wings, she was doing certainly a lot more in the band. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess to me, is from my perspective, she looked a bit done. Like, yeah, the kids starting to leave home soon, Paul. You know, <laughs> I want to do something else. Yeah. Maybe maybe take a trip down memory lane. Oh, sorry, that was a, a terribly cheesy tra tra transition there. Paul starts talking to the camera about memories he had with John in Liverpool, specific snapshots. Of course, take the shot again. It's the classic Penny Lane story, and we go on to Penny Lane. In Penny Lane, there is a bar with showing photographs. Of every hand he's had the pleasure to know. All the people that come and go, stop and say hello. On the car. Another song debuted here. Again, advancements in technology. We can copy and paste quite a lot of the uh, fixing a hole uh, criticism here and take it straight over to here, I reckon. You can. And in fact, um, you know, I was sort of looking at the uh, playing bass because Penny Lane has a really interesting bass line. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his bass lines these days are not quite as, um, let's say, Baroque as uh, as they were in the Beatles times. And when people have asked him about that, he said, well, it's a different style now, you know? But he played the Penny Lane bass line the way it is on the record. And uh, and I was I was very happy to see that. Mm. And he's also playing it on the uh, the Honer bass, the, the violin bass, which um, everybody who plays bass that I know has told me those things are very unreliable. I, I don't know whether he has his, you know, so specially made that they're, that he has like the only reliable honer basses in the world. 
uh, or what, but they're, they're apparently, you know, hard to keep in tune and uh, he seems pretty comfortable with it. So, you know, you know in the studio, he mos use, mostly uses the Rickenbacker. Mm -hmm. So whatever it means, but yeah, great performance of Wix doing as, as we talked about already, the, the flute and trumpet parts and really making them sound like flutes. I mean, when you when you compare Wix's tech to the Flowers in the Dirt era stuff, where it can be a bit ropey and a bit like, where did he get this sample from? Here, it's like that he spent a year preparing for this. It's it's note for note perfect. I've got nothing bad to say about Wix here. Also, there's quite a bit from Linda here as well. There's like all the basic piano chords are all coming from her, and they are classic piano chords that guide you through the song. Then we also cut to the part where, uh, we, as we mentioned earlier, Paul is mocking a fan for begging for a pick. I can probably, I can probably guess who that was if it was in England, but uh, my uh, knowledge of the New York scruffs isn't quite as uh, fully, fully realised. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> then instead of another talking head, we just get a couple of shots of some hands, and then we come on to a song that has been horribly misrepresented in the fandom as far as I'm concerned, which is biker like an icon. Mm -hmm. There was a girl who loved the biker. She used to follow him across America, but the biker didn't like her. Yeah, she still persisted But her brother said she was twisted And the family said they wouldn't miss her anyway She loved her life like an icon Making at his picture every day She loved her life like an icon Slowly watching where she Alan, this is a great song, right? Come on. I don't know. It's an okay song. Uh, <laughs> I, I, he's 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 got this wordplay going, you know. With um, people yeah. hate that lyric. People hate the lyric. Oh my god, they hate it so much. There was a girl who loved her back. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's got you know. Uh, Partly, I guess, because of Linda's photography. Uh, he's, he has not just an icon camera, but he's also got a Leica in there, too. <laughs> Leica, Nikon. You know, it's it's kind of... <laughs> it, it, it's uh -huh. just a word game, but, you know, you kind of wonder sometimes when you think about these things, does a cute little word game really survive as a song that is going to you know be out there for forever for, you know yes uh, so you know it's it's a cute little game it's uh around which he wrote that sort of creepy story about the girl who's chasing the guy and then she disappears you know so what happened to her you know Oh yeah, it's not it's not a 2021 kind of narrative at all. No, it's <laughs> it's it almost sounds like a Tom Waits song, like some like some girl running off with a man and never coming back in America. Like oh, like, right? Yeah, you know, uh, you, you, she you, got you, a bike. 
Maybe he was thinking this could be a soundtrack for one of those, you know, true crime TV shows, you know? <laughs> the girl gets, you know, drawn into the woods and no one ever sees her again. And uh, yeah, a little unlike Paul, I think, in a way. I mean, yeah. I think he was just so taken with the uh, camera brands Oh, no, but like, you know, it's like at some point Linda said, hey, the word seaside is like seas and we put it on the B side, B side to seaside. Come on. Paul and Linda love puns. Let's get this very clear, folks. You know, Paul loves his wordplay. Right. I mean, you know, oh, John was the wordsmith, you know, oh, he wrote he wrote silly nonsense in I am the walrus. Paul's done so much fantastic wordsmithery. Again, that no one gives fair credit to, but hopefully the uh, new lyric slash autobiographical book that we're getting in November should highlight some of those mm-hmm. uh, excellent moments mo- moments of his. I guess the best way to put Biker Like an Icon, like we've got silly love songs, we've got rockers, we've got granny songs. I think this is like a granny rocker in a way. It's got that goofy silliness and it's not meant to be taken seriously at all and that is kind of jarring with the subject matter of the song maybe that's intentional Mm -hmm. but it's got a hard rock sound that i kind of wanted to be more present on the album itself and yet here when it's done live i think it could have been done slightly better i don't know i wanted i wanted to see robbie mcintosh go even further here like Mm. I, i never compliment slide guitar ever Oh my god! It's some of the some of the best slide guitar I've ever seen in this song. Like my appreciation for that man as a guitarist has completely changed since watching up close. Watching him very literally up close, and every single song, Paul just goes, "Go on!" And he just starts shredding, and it's incredible. And it makes me laugh because twenty years prior, if Henry McCullough played one note slightly differently, you got a smack around the back of the head, didn't he? So. It, you've mentioned Paul can be a bit more laid back and loose with the arrangements here and that's probably from familiarity as well he's been on tour with these guys and stuff but I think he just likes this band more as well and is willing to let them cut loose you know Uh then we uh, have the paperback writer little story that goes into uh, how we wrote yesterday I'll have to take two shots now I'm getting very drunk by this point (laughs) Yesterday's story itself has, has extra shots. Yes. Oh, and then like have a shot every time he scratches his nose or says, you know, that's the big one. Like if I was editing Paul McCartney's podcast, I'd have to cut out about 700 you knows per hour. So, you know, I started to Linda and, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, so the first song that was cut from the track listing is I Owe It All To You and be. Because I like it, of course it was cut. This is one of the best songs from the set list, as far as I'm concerned. Images 
guess um, I guess I was more wowed than the uh, tele- than the television network. You know, what do you think of this one? You know, when it came on, I I had trouble placing it. It's a song that I probably haven't listened to in decades. So you know, I was sort of becoming re re familiar with it, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it struck me as a a nice song of the love songs for Linda, you know, variety, mm-hmm. of which there is a rather large, <laughs> but one that uh, I think I think it, it it deserves to be heard more than it is. It doesn't deserve to have necessarily been totally forgotten by me. <laughs> uh, you know, but it was a, it, it's it, he put it over well enough to make me think, you know, I ought to, I ought to look into that again. I, I, Alan, I, how could you forget this song? This is the best stuff since the White Album. You are quoted as saying that. I was quoted. <laughs> <laughs> it's our fake beard on you, it's fake. It's our fake beard on you. Yeah, but it, it, is, it wasn't one of the ones on the album that sort of, like, stood out for me. Um, you know, even Wine Dark Open Sea, I remember more more thoroughly. So I, I, I don't know. Uh, obviously, it's time for a refresher. Well, we'll get up to that in the book, and I'll be spending time with it. But that may not be for a while. We're only at volume. We finished volume one, which takes us only up to 1973. <laughs> volume two take us only up to 1980 and um you know i'm sort of wondering if i'm gonna live long enough to write about this stuff but i'm not gonna lie the the just just the idea that volume three will exist excites me because like okay take howard soon's book uh fab and intimate life of Paul mccartney here's the 60s stuff right folks hang on here's the 60s stuff here's the 70s stuff the 80s stuff is like oh, please write about the Phil Ramone sessions they're really good I promise you it's really interesting write about Rupert the Bear I want to know yeah well that's why we're doing it you know because as, as when we put our proposal together one of the things you have to do publishers want you to do is talk about whatever else there is out there and right. you know for most Paul McCartney books it's like exactly like what you did you know with your with your hands showing the the Beatles part is real big, and the whole solo part is never half the book. You know, it's mm-hmm. uh, and if you think about it, I mean, the Beatles was ten years. You know, well plus so plus that includes his childhood and all that. So let's say, yeah. 20. and the rest of his career has been over fifty. So why does it get such short shrift? And uh, we were able to find a publisher who said, yeah, you're right, you know, and also is a, a Paul McCartney freak, which is nice to find in a publisher. <laughs> Whenever I talk to someone who's writing a book, there's always this little nagging guy at the back of my brain going, you know, no one's done a revolution in the head for yet. You could just mm-hmm. write you could just write that, Sam. It's not even a difficult concept. Literally, just go, uh, hey, MacDonald, can I just uh, copy your entire <laughs> format, please? Who was on the song, bit of trivia about the song, and then an incorrect opinion on the song. The Ian McDonald format, you know? He doesn't like While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I can't get over that. I sometimes stay up at night, like, tossing and turning, worrying yeah. about Ian McDonald, you know? You know, ours doesn't have an awful lot of um, opinion as such. I mean, there are probably ways that you can determine what we 
really feel about a particular <laughs> writing it, but but basically we just want to get down to how it was done, you know, and 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 what he had in mind, what influenced him, and that's that's already plenty to say, you know. And I'm used to expressing an opinion because hell, I was a critic for most of my life, for you know, for a place that let me say my opinion. Um, so in a way, doing this is. Uh, I don't want to say like being in a straitjacket, it's really not. But, um, you know, Adrian in particular has is, is felt that we should keep opinion out of it as much as we can. And so whenever I sort of try to sneak one in, he's he's there to say, uh, well, maybe we, you could get that across in a different way, you know, so, so we do. Yeah, this has been fun anyway. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. I, I I really am, and I cannot wait for things we said today's completely unbiased review of the book as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. I'll take a week off. <laughs> I, I can just imagine Ken Markle's. You know, yeah, I, I great book, Sam. I think it's I think I think it's amazing. You know, oh right, what do we have next? Oh, here we go, fucking it up for everyone. We have big boys bickering. slated all the time was this one for you that was again dead on arrival or do you have a a wry secret love for this like me no i like this one too in the same for the same reason i love looking for changes um you know but it was a b-side so a lot of people might not have even gotten it you know it, it might it, if they didn't buy the single they didn't get that and it sure wasn't being played on the radio for obvious <laughs> reasons um you know Paul is doing stuff on this album, uh, forthcoming album at the time of Up Close, that everybody has always, especially in the early days, criticized him for not doing, which is expressing an opinion about something real, as John would put it, you know? Yeah. And again, this is, this is, you know, it's about big boys bickering. I mean, is it about... It could be about an awful lot of things. I mean, generally, politically, it, it, it works for basically anything. But, you know, it goes with looking for changes. In a way, it goes with hope of deliverance. Uh, there's, it, it, it seems like he, at some point, might have been thinking of, of doing an album about topics, you know? Uh, he only had really tried it intermittently before i mean give ireland back to the irish was the the one big attempt to do a political song and that uh that was just um 
I think a few months after John compared him to Mary Whitehouse, who you might know more about than I do because she was a British. Um, but you know, we we actually in in the book again, we you know obviously have gotten past that part. So uh, it's in, in volume one. So we've got John taunting him about being like Mary Whitehouse. We've got other people saying, well, you know, just, these are just, you know, it's nice that he loves Linda and all that stuff, but there's serious stuff happening in the world. John's doing all the commenting on it. Uh, George is taking up causes like Bangladesh, what's Paul doing? Well, this is a long time later, but here he's doing it and maybe not getting enough credit for it or not being taken as seriously as he should be. But that said, he shouldn't have buried big boys bickering on the back of a single. He should have put it on the album. Mm -hmm. it's, Maybe it's, instead of Peace in the Neighborhood. It's, it's such an interesting concept, the idea of Paul McCartney being quote-unquote political, because he really has built a career off being the everyman, being the friendly man, being off, being off the fence, <laughs> or on the fence rather than off the ground. And in a way, it... it, it teaches on, you know, never meet your idols. Because it's like, oh, okay, what does Paul McCartney care about? And he's going to turn half of his fans off if he gets too political one one way or the other, you know? There might be a lot of people you, you don't want listening to your records, but their money's as good as anyone's, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, here he is being political. And on Egypt Station, he got political a little bit too. I mean... A little bit, yeah. Well, you know, here at least, um, a little bit of anti-Trump goes a long way. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It was an environmental song, wink, wink, in, yeah. in the way that Lavatory Lil is clearly not about the time he had to carry his one-legged wife to the toilet because he won't allow her to have a bedpan in the bed because he doesn't want to sleep with an old woman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's in the transcripts, folks. You can go read it. You can go read it. Thanks to an untitled Beatles podcast for that tidbit. Uh, <laughs> but we're not going to bicker because we're not big boys. Uh, we're right. we're going to move on to Paul talking about Chet Atkins and finger picking. And then the moment I heard him talking about posh parties that they weren't really welcome at and sitting in the corner. Oh, it's the Michelle story. We've got Michelle. Another <laughs> yeah. I love all of Paul's little... French affectations, and he does it in this as well. Obviously, we're going to talk about Michelle now.
this is my father's favourite song. I've got nothing bad that I'll ever be able to say about Michelle. But fortunately, besides being really biased, it's also just legit one of the greatest Beatles songs. And immaculate might be too soft a word in this case. I, I thought this was as perfect to per, you know as close to perfect as you can in in in, in a performance. And again, Robbie McIntosh, that acoustic guitar solo. It just sounded like they 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 lifted it off the off the record. You know, I, I got the same rush and the tingling hairs on the back of my neck, and that's twenty yeah. some years. Well, that's twenty eight years on. You know, and if I was you, I'd have to be carried out like Shea Stadium at at, at this point. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm faint. Yeah, I, I don't know that he did Michelle much before this either, did he? Is I don't. I, I think it's brand new. I think it's a debut again. Yeah, quite a lot of that here. Although the thing he did with it, Jingle Bells, he also did in uh, on December fifteenth, eighty nine, at Madison Square Garden. Um, but he was on piano for that, so this is. Oh. <laughs> at least, he, at least he's he's not doing Babyface again, you know. <laughs> Although I do love Babyface, to be to be fair. Yeah, with the accordion on this one, I thought was. A really inspired addition. Like, and I'm getting to the point now. I'm like, okay, I know that there's nothing Wixie can do that won't improve a Paul McCartney solo song, but now Wixie's improving the Beatles material. And I'm like, just throw money at this man, Paul. You know, make make sure he's really happy for the next thirty years. Mm. And I guess it, I guess he has been. I guess he has been because yes. you don't see Wixie in interviews. You know, he's just this figure floating in the in in the background who probably has a big non-disclosure agreement with a check staple to it <laughs> oh i'd love to hear about his process just wixie wixie in the studio moving some faders up i'd love to see that mm-hmm. on to the next track we've got hope of deliverance i will always be This is a track that I discovered through the Steve Sanderson remix, 12-inch uh, release, which has the remix of all of Off the Ground on one side, then another remix of Hope of Deliverance on the B side, and then it's got Hope of, Hope of Deliverance after that as a second track on the B side. And it's this just having this Paul McCartney club dance tune that I can secretly put on when my friends are over and they don't know it's a Paul McCartney track is the best feeling ever. You know, I haven't had that since Check My Machine a couple of years ago. That's another one of those ones where people are like, oh, Sam, what's this? And I'm like, <laughs> it's a Paul McCartney song that was written in 1979, you're and you're dancing to it. And they're like, no, no. Love that kind of feeling. And yeah. 
Because the normal version of Hope of Deliverance is on the end of this 12-inch maxi single, I've heard it a lot. And this is a song that's burrowed its way into my psyche. I see it on the back of my eyelids. I see it in my dreams. I hear it <laughs> when I go to sleep. I think it's a great track. I think it's just classic Paul McCartney melody writing. It's classic Paul McCartney chorus. Mm-hmm. And you know what? The off the ground band that just kill it here. I mean, you know when people get a, a, a can of Coke and a can of Pepsi and they try and make taste the difference. If you had a can of off the ground Home of Deliverance and a can of up close Home of Deliverance, you wouldn't be able to taste the difference at all. Right. I mean, and they were probably rehearsing that one up, uh, you know, be, knowing that it was going to be the first single and that there'd be a lot of TV appearances, you know, where he'd be playing it. Uh, <clears throat> although a lot of what was was done was playing the video, so uh, don't know. But uh, yeah, it's 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 a it's a solid song. I think it's another one of those ones that gets forgotten, uh, as too much stuff from off the ground does. But it, it works well here too, and it was, uh, you know, it was nice to hear uh, that there were so many, you know, pretty good songs. At least, you know, a lot of them better than pretty good on this forthcoming album that nobody knew. You know, mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, and then with the Pepper stuff and Penny Lane and everything in between, it was, it, it just was a really exciting show, all told. Oh yeah, they they uh, they definitely sold at least seven hundred copies of the album thanks to the show. Absolutely, yeah. Well, no, six hundred ninety nine because you were you were probably sent one, I imagine. <laughs> yes, but then I had to buy the Japanese one because disc two had all the B sides and uh, you know and the full cosmically conscious. Wow. So Paul doing the whole Japan gets all the good stuff goes at least back to nineteen ninety three. Then oh my gosh! Oh, easily. Earlier than that, uh, you know, it's funny when <laughs> if I can digress again. When the Russian album came out, uh, I had a, a friend who was a, a basically a ballet conductor, but he's also secretly a big Beatles collector, and uh, he was going to Russia to conduct. And he said, "So anything I can bring you back from Russia?" And I said, "Well, you know, do you know about this Russian album of Paul's?" And he said, "No, what?" And I told him what it was and I and, you know, no copies had been in the U.S. by then, you know. So he went over. I said, you know, if you're smart, you'll probably buy yourself a few extras and, you know, sell them to one of the shops down in Greenwich Village, you know. Um, so he bought a box of them. And box. Oh, yeah, my God. He, he gave me one and then he, uh, you know, he sold most of the others to uh, a shop. So I decided I was going to do a story about this. When he came back and I had the album and could hear it, I was going to do a piece for the Times. And I called up Richard Ogden, who was his manager at the time. And Paul was working on Flowers in the Dirt. And Ogden was saying, well, you know, I can't get him to the phone right now because he's busy with the new album. But, uh, you know, we could probably do something. And I said, look, you know, I can ask you some of the, you know, businessy questions about why do it in Russia and all that stuff. And he... Mm -hmm. He could then just, you know, talk philosophically about why he was doing it and what it is whenever we get get him on the phone. And he said, yeah, okay. So I started asking him some questions. And one of the questions I asked was, you know, on a lot of his singles lately, you're doing things where, you know, there's a B-side that's not on the album. 
And then you put out a Japanese version and it comes out in five versions and each of those has another B-side or two that isn't on any album. And it gets really expensive to collect all these. And Ogden said to me, well, you know, you sound a little more like a fan than a New York Times reporter. Let's see what the Times wants to do about this. And I said, well, are you, are you saying that you feel a New York Times reporter should not know his actual field? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> and, uh, you know, so after a few days, we still didn't get Paul on the phone. And uh, my editor said, just, just write the piece, you know. So I wrote it and I used uh, quotes from Ogden about the things that we talked about and no quotes from Paul. And Ogden was really upset when the article came out because Paul doesn't like people talking for him. If it's his project, he wants to be the one to say it, but he wants it to be on his schedule. And newspaper schedules don't always tie in closely with Paul McCartney's schedules. So Ogden writes to me, sends me a fax saying, well, you know, first of all, all those comments were off the record and you shouldn't have used them. And second, well, you know, I had set up an interview for you with Paul on January 25th. Now the story came out on January 12th. Um, <laughs> and so I guess I'm just gonna cancel that. It's like slapping me on the wrist, you know? Uh, so I faxed back and said, you know, here's the thing about off the record. For something to be off the record, you must actually utter the words out loud to me. And two, you're absolutely right. An interview on January 25th for an article published on January 12th really would be kind of useless. So I hated to have to do that because yeah, I really wanted to talk to Paul, but it was going to be too late for this story. And so our next one was to try and get an interview with him for Flowers, you know, and uh, that didn't happen either. I ended up just reviewing the record. <laughs> you know, we eventually did some interviews and they were really pleasant and, uh, you know, it was, it was great. I mean, because I was determined not to allow him to tell me the story about dreaming yesterday or the French thing with Michelle and all that. So I Can asked you say that? Can you say that? Look, Paul, big fan. I know it, I know it all. And my readers don't want to hear it. So just talk to me like we're at a dinner party or something. Well, you know, what I decided to do was to try and ask questions where that couldn't be part of the answer, you know? <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to outthink you, McCartney. I'm going to think of questions where you can't go, so, Paul, what do you think of, like, the Iraq war? So, oh, so my mom came to me in this dream, right? And she said, let it be. Like, no. <laughs> you know, but it worked out really well. I mean, he, I got him to tell me stuff that I didn't remember reading 8 million times before. And we had a, we had a, a really good interview and, uh, you know, each of the times that, that I've done one with him. And, um, but after that, actually in the 93 tour to get us sort of back to our era where we're talking to, uh, there was a, a CBS TV uh, reporter. I can't remember her name. But she called me at the paper and said, you know, I'm interviewing Paul McCartney and I was wondering if you could give me some tips. And I said, well, here's the thing. Paul has a, a list of stories that he likes to tell about. He dreamed yesterday and the gambling lambs made him vegetarian and the movement you need is on your shoulder. You know, the whole thing. And uh, 
what you got to do is listen to as many of his interviews as you can, read as many of his interviews as you can, and come up with a list of questions that avoids those topics and gets him to talk about stuff that he hasn't talked about before. And she said, oh, okay. So she goes and interviews him, and I saw it on TV. It was a really pretty good interview. And then she calls me when she gets back to New York and... She said, so uh, yeah, that went really well. You know what I did? I just went to him and said, listen, Paul, Alan Cozen at the time says that you always tell the same story and I have to get you to not tell the same story. So don't tell me about dreaming yesterday or any of that stuff. And I said, wait a minute. You name dropped you though. Did you say that like by name? You, you said that. Here's a photo of him. Here's his address. There you go. Said, yeah. And I said, well, I think at the very least, you now owe me all the outtakes from your interview, but she wouldn't give them to me. So oh. it's really too bad. <laughs> you got to try when you can. <laughs> My gosh. Yeah. Right. Let's move on to something that might not be so fun to talk about. This is not a cover of Long Tall Sally or Lucille. I wish it was. We're going to go with another screamer. Can't buy me love. This is not a reinterpretation, this is a reinterpretation. Is this something you would want to see at a Paul McCartney show, these, these crazy reimaginings? Um, I can guess from the way you phrased the question that you would rather hear Ue Le Soleil. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh my God. Although they did play that when I saw him live uh, as like the pre-show music, so... Yeah, so here he did Can't Buy Me Love with Robbie, both on acoustic guitars in a very sort of countryish way. I found it really interesting. I don't, I'm not saying that it's how I want to hear Can't Buy Me Love all the time, but up to this point at least, it was really unusual for Paul to do his songs differently than you knew them. I mean, there might be a breathe in, breathe out difference, you know, or... Honestly, the only one I can think of is I've just seen a face from uh, Wings Over America. That's a slight rearrangement, but that's it. So you're right, right. yeah. <clears throat> and, and and I've always... Um, it's, it's one of those things where, okay, you know, on one hand, Paul can do what he wants to do. He's Paul McCartney, for God's sake, right? But I sort of liken his show style to, and, and, and I asked him about this too, you know, you go to his show and 
on one tour, it is basically the same thing every night. I mean, starting in maybe 2011, he began switching out what the, whether the first number was going to be, uh, you know, Magical Mystery Tour or, or, or something else. I think yeah. he had two that he went back and forth on. <clears throat> but mostly, you know, as, as someone sitting here, you know, collecting all the bootlegs, collecting all the videos, you know, the handheld camera videos from the audience and watching show after show. And it's exactly the same. And the things he says in between songs are exactly the same. I've always thought, you know, okay, that's obviously one form of doing a show. You have your show, you've rehearsed your show, you go out and do it the same way every night. It's a legitimate way to do it. On the other hand, if you, I also collect Hendrix and Hendrix could do two shows a night and they would be totally different set lists. And if he repeated a song, it bore very little resemblance to the way he played it the first time. And then there's Dylan. You can't even recognize his songs anymore because they're so rearranged. And so I've always wished that McCartney would sometimes take a chance with something. And here he did it. And I found it very pleasant. In fact, on my, uh, my sort of, you know, list of stuff. I, I, I even had it's a star there. For <laughs> so I, I did like it. Um, and I, I, I guess, you know, we'll just have to disagree on whether it was too crazy. <laughs> but uh, Touching Beatles material is just inherently risky in itself. But I guess turning such a powerful bluesy rocker into this awkwardly jerky kind of acoustic shuffle just didn't do it for me. However, I don't take the attempt away from Paul, ever, and we're going to be rewarded with experimentation in another Beatles track later. So mm-hmm. we'll try and get some peace in the neighbourhood now by talking about peace in the neighbourhood. Two words for you, Alan. Dorky masterpiece. What's your take on this track? Hmm. Best thing I ever saw, Alan, was a man who loved his wife. <laughs> rock on, rock on, bro! Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Not one of the real highlights of Off the Ground. Musically, it's, it's you know, if he, if he had come up with lyrics better than that, it... it, it, it could have been a, a, a pretty hot song and the title leads you to believe that you know he's picking up John's peace mantle but yeah it's uh it, it, to me it's a kind of diffuse song that's that and and come on people too in a way you know those two I link together they're 
they're songs that kind of want to have <clears throat> a useful social message, but somehow fall a bit short. You know, I'd rather I'd rather hear him singing about you know putting a machine in an animal's brain. You know, you want to see yes. what he's really angry about. You know. Well, that feels more on brand as well, doesn't it? You know, Paul talking about some like animal rights and stuff. Whereas, like, I've never heard Paul talk about any sort of disharmony with his neighbourhood, whether it was in Liverpool or whether it's the farmers near Hogs Hill Mill. You know, kind of sounded a bit, a bit. I don't know. There's a lot of this '89, '93 period that seems Americanized, just from the perspective of a British person. Especially when you hear things like "Get Out of My Way" is a driving song, which is which is not a concept we have here in Old Blighty. I can I can I can, I, I can tell you that much. Well, that's but, because um, we got the steering wheel on the side. No, we we don't we don't have to drive anywhere. Like, I mean, you're in Maine now. Like, that might be one state that my country's bigger than. <laughs> that might be one of the few. Rhode Island. <laughs> yes. No. Um, yeah, let's let's uh, move on to another Beatles reinterpretation. That wait, don't we have off the ground next? Oh, so is that right? Ah, so that's in terms of the actual gig, right? I think I might have this backwards. Oh yeah, no, no. Um, on the on the actual gig, they played off the ground first, but on the TV show, they reversed it with "I Want to Be Your Man." You're yes. Right. Yeah, which is, I think that's the only example I mentioned earlier of like them actually changing the order of things rather than just taking something out. I don't know what effect it achieves at all. I really don't. Obviously, Paul starts talking about one of his favourite anecdotes, which is, we're better than the Rolling Stones. That's the brief synopsis of that uh, anecdote. Yeah, we we wrote them their first single. Which it wasn't. Wasn't <laughs> it? Oh, that's interesting. Another error. Oh, my God. Fake Paul McCartney news, everyone. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I want to be your man. What's going on? Uh, well, you know, he's made it a bit funkier. I think that, I think maybe he feels better about heavily altering their really early stuff than mm. their later stuff. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Because the thing, you know, Can't Buy Me Love is sort of third album, you know, Hard Day's Night, uh, pretty early, but. It's still black and white, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think he. I think he saw in "I Want to Be Your Man," which you know, at heart, 
is basically a, a, a Bo Diddley riff kind of thing. You don't really hear it in the Beatles and Stones version, but it's in there. And he emphasized that in this and made it a bit more funky or soulful or, uh, you know, I think in a way updated it. And uh, I, I, I thought it worked. Um, you know, you can see him after all, you know, in this day and age, or certainly in that day and age in 1993, playing the Pepper Tracks and Penny Lane, and you know, as they were with the Beatles. Mm. But you can't see him coming out with a 1964, 63 Beatles sound now. It, you know, he ne doesn't do it. So when he does an old, a song that old, which are, have been few in his set lists over the years, he does Love Me Do, and it's different. And he, he, he did that medley of Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You, which he put out as P.S. We, we don't talk about that here, Alan, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that's... Uh... <laughs> okay. uh, but in other words, he, he, seems, he seems more at home with messing with the really old Beatles stuff. And I want to be your man sort of fits into that. Maybe maybe there's the production element and the voice, you know, maybe there's an element of I, I I can't I can't even touch that magic, but the stuff that was more produced and had a more modern sound, I guess he is more comfortable approaching that. That that would make more sense. For me that this is a bit turgid. Sounds a bit like a, a studio jam that gets a bit out of control. And Paul, 10 minutes before the gig, went, you know, let's, uh, let's do that. I want to I wanna be your man that Robbie did the other night. And they all went, okay, I guess, I guess, Paul. Also, Paul's got a weird habit of doing Ringo songs. Like, I know I've seen him do Honey Do before. Uh, sorry, um, Honey Do. Honey, Honey Don't. I've seen him do Honey Don't before as well. Yeah. Has he done a George song besides something? Not that I know of. Yeah, obviously, it's something on the ukuleles. But... Yeah. Um, and then John, we've had Imagine, Help, Give Peace a Chance, Benefit of Mr. Kite. Wow, it's been quite a few John, John ones he's done. Next song from Off the Ground is the title track itself, Off the Ground. I'd say this I'm very happy with the amount of album material on this set list like normally I'm I'm the kind of guy who's the opposite he's like you know give me the hits that's what I've paid good money to see but here it's so unique and off the ground is just such a, an amazing song I remember being very scared to listen to the album I was, I was apprehensive and in the way that those opening notes of the Venus and Mars rock show just calmed me down I went no no this is classic Paul just hearing that, bow, wow, 
wow. I was like, oh, okay, I'm in for a good time here. This seems like it's goofy right. and going to be fun. And that's exactly what we get here again. That's true. And you get some great slide playing from Robbie. Apparently, in this show, has converted you to slide. Yeah. So, I'm sliding. So I'm gliding hey. through the air. <laughs> also, just before we move on from off the ground, did you see that weird tribal stick or staff that Linda was holding during that? Was it was it a rain stick to like make a rain sound or something? If if you watch the off the ground, but she's got like it's like Rafiki's staff from the Lion King or something. Yeah, I have no idea what that was. It's it's not. It wasn't. I thought about a rain stick, but it doesn't look like one. I mean, I have I have a rain stick right here. Ah, <laughs> you don't get this on two legs, folks. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, he's got he's literally got. So it wasn't like this, you know. Yeah, no, it was a thin. Yeah. So I have no idea what that was. It, it was it was sort of interesting, but then I forgot to look into it. No, um, I will. I will I'm, I'm going to put that on on the Twitter the moment this con this conversation's over. I'll take a screenshot, folks. What is this? Is this like footage of Bigfoot or something? Help me understand what what this is. Then we get a wonderful anecdote that I thought was going to be about Mal Evans, but then it turns into the whole Sergeant Pepper story. You know, what if what if we weren't the band, you know? <laughs> I mean, I can't believe... I mean, if there was a Magical Mystery Tour song in this, we would have got the, the circle anecdote, wouldn't we? You know, it's like, I drew this poem. We moved around like that. Right. <laughs> Obviously, 1992, Pepper still the number one album. Revolver hasn't quite taken the spot at this point. That's right. The, the rock intelligentsia haven't picked their raffle yet. Here's one of the songs we did on tour uh, a couple of years ago. And this one goes back more than 20 years. It's like this. one at first and I was like eh bit blase just an another version of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and then rather unexpectedly there's this out of nowhere breakdown section this instrumental where everyone loses their minds Robbie and Paul start dueling each other like they're in deliverance or something it's, it's, it's amazing it, not only a highlight of the show but a highlight of this era it's one of my favourite performances of Sgt Pepper there is and I'm watching it, I'm thinking, why doesn't this happen more at Paul McCartney shows? This would be great. If I could see Rusty just absolutely losing it to like to like Sergeant Peppers, that would be fantastic. And again, it goes back to what, to what we, we were talking about earlier. He, he, I think he just, 
I'm not saying he doesn't trust his new touring band. It's a different objective he's got with him. But with this new band he's got here in 92, 93, he, he just trusts them. Yeah, Robbie, whatever, man, do it. It's going to sound good. I trust you that it will sound good. And the guitar work on this song is just incredible. It really is. But, you know, before the jam, it's remarkably close to the album. And again, Wicks and the horn parts, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Really good. Uh, but I, I like the fact that it went into a jam again. You know, it's another thing that it's it's not turning it on its head the way it did with... I want to be your man or camp mm-hmm. I be love. He basically is just exploring the implications of the song, you know, if it wasn't mm-hmm. just an intro to an album going into a little help for my friends, if it was, you know, a, a, a freestanding thing, how would it go? Jam makes sense. And he has someone like Robbie there to jam with, you know, that's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's good to have a good band if you're a music <laughs> So... Real that was yeah. Of course, uh, he goes into the Jimi Hendrix anecdote, the Savile Theatre and playing Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I believe there was a movie, a biopic of Hendrix with Andre 3000 in it recently, where that's a scene in it. Yeah. And it's pretty much the only part of that movie I've seen, actually. <laughs> I've got no interest in watching the, the wider movie. Just get me a compilation of all the Beatle moments from cinema. And I'll just watch that instead. <laughs> Alan, like Sisyphus, I am forced to push a boulder up a hill in the form of my love every day. I have to talk about it constantly. I hate this song. I don't want to talk about it anymore. So please tell me you don't like it too. And when I go away, I know my heart can stay with my love. It's understood It's in the hands of my love And my love does it Something there with my love It's understood It's everywhere with my love Yeah, I could do without it. Uh, yes. To me, it's a little gooey. Um, the one thing that I like about my love, and I'm talking about the original recording, uh, is Henry Solo. Because mm-hmm. that was one instance where Henry said to Paul, look, just let me try something. Mm. And Paul said, yes, Henry had one take to do it. And he did it. And the solo in my love is beautiful. The rest of the song, you know, uh, maybe it it could be different in a different arrangement. I don't know. It it just, uh, yeah, you know, it's up there with my love, silly love songs, all those kind of uh, things that to me are a little on the gooey side for my taste. But I understand it's a, it's a sort of major plank of Paul's, uh, you know, platform. And uh, Love Songs is what he does. This is one of them. It, to me, isn't among his best ones. 
but it was a hit and it does have that solo by Henry and it should have persuaded Paul to give Henry, you know, more space more often because yeah, the best part is, you know. Oh my God, Band on the Run with Henry. I mean, I, I just spoke to Denny Sawa quite, quite, quite recently and uh, I've been thinking about what the album would sound like with Denny on drums. As we know, Paul may have not copied, but lifted certain elements of the uh, original uh, Danny Slywell drum trackings, but no one really talks about what that album would have sounded like if Henry had still been there. Like, no words, for example. What would be going on in, during the end solo of that song? That'd be completely different. Would 1985 had the same solos in the same place? I mean, how many acoustic campfire songs can Henry McCullough play before he leaves the band again? You know, A, and then G, yeah? And then A again, and then G. Um, I, I haven't caught up with your uh, with your Danny interview yet. I, I, I will do that. It's um, better than Tom Hunyadi's. That's all I'll say. It's better than his. Don't watch his. Only watch mine. All right. <laughs> um, but you know, we talked to him for the book as well. And <laughs> oh, really? oh, awesome! No, uh, honestly, m- the nicest guy ever, isn't he? He he is. Um, he gave us tons of information and. Um, basically all the information in his wife's diary about when sessions were and stuff, which for us was actually bothered to keep a diary during that time. Oh, that's so invaluable. That's that's But I asked him, um, you know, well, what about the demos of band on the run? You know, what what about all the, all those songs you guys had put together? Because Danny, I'm sure he told you Mm -hmm. his reason for not wanting to go to Lagos is, is he said, you know, it makes much more sense to get another guitarist, break him in, have him learn the parts, and then go to Legos, you know? But Paul didn't want to do that. But so I said to Denny, you know, what about, so what about those demos? Do you have a copy of those demos? And he said, no, I don't, but I'll tell you one thing. The demos were better than the album. That's scary. That's scary to think that is. It is scary because the album's incredible, you know, but uh, I'd love to hear the demos too. No, but when I was talking to Fernando, the, the uh, Denny's producer on his latest tri- uh, tribute album for Ram, he kind of made me realise it's a very sparsely produced record uh, band on the run. Besides Jet, which is just thick as molasses McCartney production, a lot of it is just a guitar, two vocalists, a drum somewhere with a mic in the vicinity. Mm-hmm. And that Lagos setup becomes more and more noticeable every time I listen to the album, especially when you plunk it right between... Red Rose and Venus and Mars, which, you know, have more production than a Michael Bay movie. You know, these these very rich albums. And maybe that's why I'm starting to go for Band on the, on, on the Run a bit. I feel like it's overplayed, a little overrated. And Venus and Mars is edging it for me now. It really is. Yeah. Um, well, they were very limited in Lagos by what they could do. I mean... When they got there, they found that, for instance, um, the studio had never been used for overdubbing. I mean, the equipment could do it, it's made to do it, but the engineers had no idea that that was even a thing. You know, that what they were used to is bringing local groups in, having them play live and recording it. And consequently, the way their board was set up, if you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to add an overdub 
you couldn't necessarily hear all of the already recorded tracks through your headphones. It wasn't rooted that way. You could only oh hear some God. of them. You know, so they uh, they really had a hard time in Lego. So a harder time than he has admitted. In fact, in a, in a, in a perfect McCartney moment, they come back from Lagos and he gives a little press conference at the airport in London. And they say, so, um, you know, how was it? Now, this is after they have gotten mugged. And then after he got, after they got mugged, he had, uh, they never really got to the bottom of it. They thought Linda first thought it was a heart attack, but he had a, you know, shortness of breath and he was taken to the hospital. And then right after that, they went back. They said, so, uh, you know, anything unusual happened? Were any difficulties in this trip? No, no difficulties at all. It was just, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so, but yeah, it was uh, Band on the Run. If if they hadn't done it in Lagos, first of all, you know, Wings might have continued because they didn't necessarily, you know, they they had to go to Lagos because they were booked to go to Lagos. Not, you know, if they were in London, it could have been, okay, well, we'll do the session next week instead of this week. We just got to get a new guitarist, you know. Uh, <laughs> nothing gets past four, does it? Uh Right, let's crack on. We're near, we're nearly there. We are on the final stretch. Another track that was cut. We couldn't have had this song instead of My Love, could we? It is Sea Moon. for a little woman love medley at this point or were you happy to finally see Paul do all of Seamoon for it again? You know? Yeah. Yeah, Seamoon is an interesting track. Uh, I, I, again, wouldn't put it in his top 100, but uh, I, I kind of think it's, I, I think the lyrics are kind of amusing, you know, mm-hmm. the L7 business and, you know, why, why doesn't anyone older than me take seriously what I want to do? It's, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a an interesting, you know, I want to be a rebel aspect of it. But in a way, it's, you know, he says in the show, it's not that well known in America. I don't know about that. It's pretty well known. But yeah, it's, it, it, I suppose in the context of this show, it was kind of an oddity. He didn't, uh, you know, he didn't bring it out, I don't think, in 89, did he? Maybe for like a sound check or something like that. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think he played it in some of the early 70s shows. Um, yeah, well, um, Wings Over the World, not Wings Over America. Before the um, Wings at the Speed of Sound tracks were added in, there was Seamoon and Little Woman Love medley. Yeah. But yeah, that's back when they were playing like Junior's Farm and stuff like that. Yeah. 
I think he sometimes likes to revive uh, <clears throat> things that have fallen by the wayside, you know, that didn't get into his set lists, aren't considered his favorites, but he likes to dust them off now and then. And uh, Oh, this is one of Paul's favorites. He plays it whenever he gets the bloody world chance. In, in those early 70s shows, yeah. so it's in James Paul McCartney TV special, it's in One Hand Clapping, it's in Wings Over the World. He loves this track and he, he's brought it up dozens of times since and it always puts a goofy smile on my face when you hear bum, 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 bum. Yeah. I just yeah. wish he'd do he'd do the the you know was that the intro I should have been in? Whoa 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 yeah yeah he never does that he just like does it <laughs> normally I guess um I wish he'd put a bit more of a performance into it I guess but yeah, um, it is usually with little woman uh love isn't it I think it was in James Paul McCartney that way it was the medley. Yeah so yeah, good to hear it on its own. It's a good version here too as well. Um, my, my favourite version of My Carnival is the one from 86 when it adds all these weird, silly little vocal overdubs. And here, he kind of does that with this song. So it's like, sea moon, oh yeah, we'll do my dabbers, you blah, 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 blah. Like just doing all of this <laughs> kind of scat over, yeah. over the top of it. And I'm like, yep, yeah, I'll have that. You know, for me, the best part of Happy With You is just when he's going, like, I love non-verbal McCartney. I think he's almost a better communicator through sounds and silly noises than he is through words sometimes. Uh, mm. 10 out of 10 for me. Then we come on to Lady Madonna. this is better than the version he recorded on his iPhone a couple of years ago? <laughs> um, not necessarily. Um, I thought it was an okay version. It, it, it you know, it was, uh, it's, it's been a staple of his, like, nine at least. It's one of the few throwbacks of the show, really. Like, a throwback not only to his older material, but the older set lists and shows and stuff. Yeah. He really could have changed it to anything at this point. I'm not even sure why it's in here. I guess it's just it's a good way to end the show. Uh, obviously, this ends the official broadcast, but we've got two more songs after this. Right. I find it quite a forgettable version in the grand scheme of uh, McCartney live performances. Yeah, I wasn't sure why it was the end of the, of the broadcast version, um, uh, if, especially since they didn't mind changing the order of Off the Ground and I Want to Be Your Man. I, I would have put Pepper at the end, actually. Yeah. Or Live and Let Die, you know, songs that actually have a certain, I guess, the actual Beatles version, dun, 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 dun. It's got a, a kind of a quick finality to it. And then you've got other versions where he adds that, do, 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 to the end of it. But it doesn't have a kind of punchy, 
see you next time, folks, kind of end to it. It feels like, oh, this is the end. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I guess we're at the end now. Yeah, because it wasn't. <laughs> the people in the audience, you know, they had two more songs. <laughs> so. One of them, which is called <laughs> Not Sea Moon People, which it might look like from a, a quick, a quick... No, Alan, I'm convinced that the reason these two songs are so close to each other in the set list is because when Paul writes it on a piece of paper, he can chuckle to himself and go, hey, Linda, look, you got Sea Moon and come on here. Isn't, isn't that funny? He can be totally that flippant. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't put it past him. Well, we're going to, yeah, we're going to get it right this time. We're going to, yeah, we're going to raise it to the sky. People are ready to forgive a few mistakes, but let's get started. Yeah, this is another track that I don't like that I think performs quite badly. I mean, for me, this this song on the album is just what I listen to to get to Cosmically Conscious. I don't think this is that interesting at all. Probably would have replaced it. There's quite a few tracks from the album I would have preferred to have heard instead. And there's a lot of times where Paul does Majesty so effortlessly, but here it feels kind of forced, like someone went, right, Paul, you need that George Martin bit on this album now where you close and you do your big more smooth and the grey goose ending except it's got no it's got no chutzpah to it you know it's uh, it just it just needs a bit more balls and uh, yeah I just I, I just think it's missing here that said I mean <laughs> excuse me it's another one of his um rabble rousing attempts you know it's uh it's not really rabble rousing musically but (laughs) it's another one of his sort of message songs you know um the intent here was you know get together and mobilize and do something but he doesn't say it quite that clearly but that's that's the the sense that you get from the whole come on people thing you know in the video and the you know when he's did it live on some TV shows too, obviously meant enough to him to do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, I, I, I just see it as, you know, regardless of, of, of whether it's one of his, you know, greatest songs or not, um, it's just another aspect of what he's trying to do on off the ground, which is say something, mm-hmm. you know, he, he probably could have said this better, but, you know, it's not bad. Uh, I, I just didn't think that the, the live version was that spectacular and uh you know the song isn't that spectacular but it's not horrible it's not like you know <laughs> good thing you're thousands of miles away you can't come beat me up oh i mean i mean oh yeah no i am a real alpha male in that in that sense you know i'm, I'm jacked you know mm. i don't like this song I, re- I want to like it i really do just going back to 
you spotted puns in biker like an icon like a nikon stuff that i never even noticed i hope that there's not a pun with come on people here that's that's all i'm saying uh uh you know um, yeah okay <laughs> we've we've all listened to eat at home you know we know paul's a bit of a kinky kinky boy and there's no kink shaming here on Paul or nothing. All bodies are beautiful here on Paul or nothing, except for mine. Uh, <laughs> and last but not least, we're not going to live and let live. We're, we're going to live and let die, of course. Here's one that uh, got covered. When you were young and your heart was an open book, you used to say. end a show though like it, I, I don't think I've seen him do this all that often and it, it just makes sense doesn't it? I mean it's usually done with pyro um, and here it wasn't which is probably the only time I've seen him do it with no fireworks or, or that's any. That's so true that's yeah. so true. And you know what it stands up quite well in a live performance without stuff exploding. I, I, I understand why he does it I mean it's it's you know it's, to sort of capture that James Bond. Oh, no, no, it's tradition at this point. There's no reason. It is just, right. you know, why do we drive on the left-hand side of the road? Why does Paul McCartney do explosions with pyro? It's, it's why is the sun rising in the east and set in the west? It's just facts, you know, part of yeah. life. And the first time they did that was on the James Paul McCartney TV show. Where they actually blew up a piano and clearly nearly hurt Paul McCartney. <laughs> Yeah, it was balsa wood, however. So it, it, you know, but you can still be hurt by something flying at you. And uh, <laughs> you are, yeah. if you look at if you look at that clip in James Paul McCartney, you see this, this, the string players, according to Dennis, they had no clue. And Henry, Henry's like, yeah, yeah. But Denny knew. Denny knew <laughs> what happened, and and he immediately like ducks. You know? <laughs> So yeah, and that that started, uh, as you say, a, a long and honored tradition. But you know, we shouldn't let that take away from the fact that uh, as a song, it's uh, it's a, a pretty good song uh, with a lot going on in it. Written over a weekend, you know, when he got the commission to do the, you know, the, the song for the film. I've always heard people have a go at the grammatical. This might be a British thing, but it's a grammatically incorrect lyric. Well, I've always in in the world in which we live in, my English teacher she'd go she'd go mad at that. She'd take a big red pen and say F. Well, yes, but um, I've always felt, and when I've watched his lips in performance and all that, that he's singing the world in which we're living. Yes, and I've heard it that way a few times before. Yeah, but when we were working on the book. 
Um, we, we quote some reviews after, after each release, we sort of deal with how it was dealt with in the press. And um, one of the reviewers immediately got onto the, the world in which we live in. And I had made a comment saying, you know, not noticing that the actual words are whatever. And got a call from Adrian saying, excuse me, here is the sheet music. And here is, you know, what he basically showed me that um, it was published as the world in which we live in. (laughs) So um, that doesn't mean that 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 can still be wrong. You know, it's not like Paul um, transcribes his music for the copyright uh, and the publication Mm -hmm. himself. Someone else does that. And it's it could be that they heard it that way and wrote it down. Oh, yeah. Is it is it Susie's parlor? Is it Susie Parker? Only Peter Jackson will be able to tell us. And with that, on that bombshell note that had nothing to do with what we were talking about, we've actually come to the end of Up Close. Uh, Like I say, it wasn't called Up Close at that point. It would have been some focus group in the 90s. Probably thought thought of that one. I can't think of any lyric in the show that's up close or anything from the album that's up close. Possibly. Might have to go back and check that out. But yeah. Alan, over, overall, would you call this an essential viewing uh, item for a Paul McCartney fan? Um, yeah, I would, but I would call the full show essential viewing. The MTV, the, the, sorry, VH1, they were really the same company. The VH1 <laughs> uh, broadcast, I would say less so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the full show was... You know, it was just, it's just great to watch. It was great to watch in person. It was really great to watch in person. But it's really nice to have just a a complete show like that. And I think if they were going to release that, that's how they should do it. Mm -hmm. Off the ground archive set, come on. It's got to be in there. It's got to be in there. And what we watched was the December 10th performance, which was the one that I went to. There was also a performance on December 11th. So they have two days worth of performances to choose from. There is also footage of a dress rehearsal that I've seen. Oh. Uh, not a dress rehearsal because they're not dressed in their stage clothes. They're very casual. <laughs> and in fact, actually, one of the one of the few selling points of the edited with the interviews VH1 version is that they also have some footage from the uh, from the rehearsals. Uh, yeah, you see all, all, all the little stingers, like when you return from from the commercials and stuff. Yeah, yeah, they're sort of you know jamming, doing things that are you can't even tell what song they're they were doing. It, it's sort of you know getting jamming. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that as bonus tracks of the complete show released on Blu-ray with (laughs) 5.1. If we're going to get, I mean, if the McCartney Years DVD project, like pure McCartney, it's it's so incomprehensive and non-complete, it's laughable. And if Paul was going to do a Blu-ray, the McCartney Years thing, where he gets everything he's filmed and actually put it on DVD... It would be like printing Lord of the Rings as one book in post-World War II Europe. You, you're going to have to break it up. It's just too much paper. It's going to be too expensive. No one book will be able to afford it. And I guess that's why I wish he would just release them all as individual things. I'm not even saying there has to be a physical DVD. Just put it on Amazon. Put it on, you know, Prime. Put it on Netflix or an uh, Apple. Put, well, Paul's, you know, 
in Spotify's pocket now. Put it on Spotify, you know, as 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 an exclusive. I, I've been having this a lot, you know. I've I've done put it there recently. I did one hand clapping recently. James Paul McCartney, and time and time again, as someone who grew up with the internet and is very used to having uh, Big Daddy Jeff Bezos deliver him anything he wants whenever he wants it, the fact that Paul just Look, Paul, if you want me to illegally download your stuff, that's fine. But that's on you. You're the one that's not allowing me to legitimately buy it. I've got adult money now. I've got big boy money. <laughs> I've got a little bit left over every month that I can spend on whatever I want. You know, I mean, yep. I, give, I give Tom Hanyardi a lot of crap for his, uh, you know, Egypt Station briefcase and his flaming pie box set they had to remortgage two houses to buy. But... Well, I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't want them. <laughs> no, I'm not. It's pure jealousy. That's all it is. Right. Yeah. No, they should, they should put this out as um, a, a straight DVD or, or um, Blu-ray. <clears throat> the thing is, is on, on his, his specials, you know, they, they try to be too arty with them. I can't remember which one it was. It, it was probably after maybe 2005 tour. Mm-hmm. And I got a call from one of his, uh, the people working on what the DVD uh, and maybe TV show from the tour was going to be. And they had, they had uh, come up with this idea that, you know, so often you look out in the audience and you see people crying after these, the Beatles songs particularly. And, uh, you know, he obviously reaches some sort of a, you know, strikes a chord with people of a of certain age and they're there with their kids and they've got their kids on their shoulders and they're crying. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted me to come down and be one of the talking heads that they have in these shows. They usually have a few critics or observers mm-hmm. or whatever pontificate. And as you know, I'm perfectly happy pontificating. But I said, look, you know, here's the thing. No one who likes Paul's going to want to fucking hear that. They want to hear him. <laughs> they want yeah. to hear him. <laughs> yeah, I, they don't want to hear me. They don't even necessarily want to hear Paul talking about it. <laughs> all I would do is put out the show from the first note to the last note. Just do it that way. And, I, you know, to them, that's a horrible idea because it makes them into basically just a pipeline, you know, from the concert stage to your living room. And well, they I, well, won't... I'm sorry, but I don't care about your content. I don't care that you haven't been able to pay an editor. Oh, you know, we haven't had Larry, so he's not being, you know, oh, I'm sorry. I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. Sorry. <laughs> because also, it, you know, it's a difference on whether you're going to watch it again multiple times or not. You know, that this up close, the uncut version. Oh, that's way more rewatchable. You're so right. I will watch that again in the future. I'm never going to watch the 57, 54 minute uncut again. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't watched it since it was on. I only watched it again because we were going to talk about it. I'm sorry. But I've watched the the full show a, a number of times over the years. So there you go. (laughs) QED. Alan, when's the book coming out? Where can people find it when it it is? And is there anything from things we said today that we can look forward to? Um, Well, the book, 
Uh, last time we spoke to our editors is now sometime in 2022, um, which is a pity. Yeah, you know, we've, we met our deadline. <laughs> unlike, unlike some very famous Beatles authors, we met our deadline and we were supposed to be out this spring or summer. Has, has, has COVID messed that all up then? Or? COVID is a big part of it, you know, because they're... Uh, you know, their their staff isn't always there doing what's involved in putting books together. A lot of it you could do at home, mm-hmm. you know, editors can edit, but, you know, you still need people in a printing plant and and uh, trucking it around and all that stuff. So that, <laughs> excuse me, that got put off. Most of, most of this book, you know, during the... Um, parts where we were really sort of like in the thick of it and you want to keep going and going. I mean, I was getting up at four in the morning to start writing. Oh, that's you know? so cool. I love that. I love the sound of that. And then write like for whole the whole rest of the day till, you know, maybe six or seven, you know. And then I think, well, I've been doing this since four, uh, it's like 13 hours. I don't know. <laughs> and then, Is that just because you've planned it out explicitly so you can just go off and write it like that it's not like you're writing like Tolkien where you don't know what the end is or anything like that you've obviously got this fully mapped out yeah yeah at least we knew we knew where it started and where it finished that turned out to be a little tricky too you know we we originally when we were talking about this we were going to take it up through Red Rose Speedway but then we thought people said to us and they were right and I kind of secretly thought it as well that you have to have bands in the run on there i mean it is you know everybody likes ram and uh, a lot of people like the first album but band on the run for a lot of people was his sergeant pepper in a way well sergeant yeah. pepper was his <laughs> you've got to you, you've got to include it you, you've you've got to sell some books you know it's uh but so sense. felt that you know band on the run had to be there and it worked out in terms of the arc of the story, which was the Beatles break up, which is where we start, you know, we start with him. I mean, there is a lot of stuff about Beatles stuff from 1969 in there. And it even looks back a little earlier to when necessary, because we're dealing with, you know, his publishing. And Mm -hmm. so some of that story has to go back. But, you know, really, we're starting in 1969. We're starting right after John made his announcement about breaking up the Beatles and Paul went up to Scotland. And so we felt, okay, so so he's really in bad shape here. He does the McCartney album. There's still a lot of, of stuff going on because that album's release basically signaled again the breakup of the Beatles, which John had already announced and was not totally unknown to the public. It, it, it hadn't been really explicitly said until Paul put out his self-interview, but then it came out that John had said earlier he was splitting the group and John alluded to it in some interviews in 1969 too. Mm. So. We wanted to build it up to where Band on the Run was suddenly this immense success after all the trouble he went through, after, you know, Red Rose Speedway and uh, EMI not wanting the double album that he wanted to make and uh, all kinds of stuff. And so it would end with the triumph of Band on the Run. The problem is the triumph of Band on the Run 
really doesn't happen until 1974. And we were ending, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we end with him recording it, mixing it, putting it out, and that's the end of 1973. So you end your book like the Sopranos. <laughs> like you just, you, yeah. <laughs> you, you release band on the run. Don't stop. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we sort of have to mention, you know, a bit about the album's eventual fate at the end. But the thing is that we're trying to keep absolutely strictly chronological with no, uh, you know, foreknowledge, as they say. So we can't, and, and with Paul, that's very hard. You know, that's the way Mark Lewison did um, yeah. his first volume. He's gonna do the whole Beatles book that way. You don't, you don't know anything coming. We don't mention anything that happens in the future. And with Paul, that's very hard because unlike the Beatles, unlike John Lennon even, he would do things and put them in the file and then take them out three years later and he might change the title. So we would give the original title because chronologically mm -hmm. that's where we are. And we're thinking, okay, well, we have to have a footnote or something because we're gonna have all these people saying, no, it's not really the title, man. <laughs> you know? So you're sort of balancing, you know, wanting to say what it actually is Mm -hmm. and not wanting to get ahead of the story. So it's, it's, it's been very tricky, but we're, we're, we're pretty pleased, I think, with the first volume. And looking at the stuff that we've got together for volume two, it looks like volume two is gonna be even better. I mean, that period from 73, 74 to 80, a whole lot of stuff happens. So I think we may end it with the uh, drug bust. We may leave oh, okay. Yeah, we'll leave him in the jail. It's a lot less harmful than alcohol and glue and... <laughs> oh, my, I love that stuff. Oh, uh, Alan, this has been... This chat has been everything I wanted I want it to be. Uh, like I say, I've been worshipping at your podcasting altar for for half a decade at least now. And hopefully hopefully, I will. there'll be other Paul McCartney concerts I've never heard of so that you can come back on and talk about them as well. But... Until then, dude, thank I doff my cap to you, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for laughing at all of my terrible jokes. And give Ken my best next time you see him, yeah? I will. Thanks for having me. Doff my headphones.